0: Good morning, this meeting will come to order. Welcome to the November 2nd, 2023 regular meeting of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I am Supervisor Catherine Stephanie, vice chair of the committee, joined by soon to be Supervisor Connie Chan and Joel Angardio. The committee clerk today is Stephanie Cabrera and our thanks to whomever is helping us at SFGovTV. I will mention that person when I have that name. But thank you, SFGovTV. Madam Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, thank
1: you. On October 17th, 2023, the Board of Supervisors approved a motion discontinuing remote public comment and participation at all board and committee meetings. Going forward, all public comment will be taken in person with remote access only being provided to those who require an ADA accommodation. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to the government audit and oversight committee clerk at alisa.somera at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via US Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. During this meeting, please be sure to sign all cell phones and electronic devices, documents to be submitted included as part of the file, should be submitted to the clerk. Items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of November 14th, 2023, unless otherwise stated. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Madam Clerk. Before we call item number one, I would like to make a motion to excuse Supervisor Dean Preston.
1: Thank you, and on that motion, Member Chan is absent. Member N'Gardio? Aye. I aye. Vice Chair Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. You have two ayes. Thank you. Will you please call item number one. Item number one is a resolution approving the memorandum of understanding between the Friends and Foundation of the San Francisco Public Library and the San Francisco Public Library to establish roles and responsibilities of each party for purposes of fundraising, enhancing operations, and capital projects for a term of ten years effective upon the approval of this resolution and to authorize the San Francisco Public Library to enter into amendments or modifications of the MOU prior to its final execution by all parties that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities to the city and are necessary to effectuate the purposes of the MOU or this resolution. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This item is a draft memorandum of understanding between the San Francisco Public Library and the friends and foundation of the San Francisco Public Library and to discuss we will be hearing from the San Francisco Public Library's Chief Operating Officer Maureen Singleton. Welcome the floor is yours. mentioned is
2: Maureen Singleton. I am the Chief Operating Officer for the San Francisco Public Library. The resolution seeks your approval of the pending MOU agreement between the San Francisco Public Library and the Friends and Foundation of the San Francisco Public Library. I'm very proud to say that the library's prior MOU from 2017 has served as the model for the city's new template for MOUs between departments and friends of organizations. This this proposed MOU before you uses that template and as such generally defines the roles, responsibilities and obligations of the entities involved in the MOU. I'm gonna walk through some of the key articles in this MOU to review with you at a high level what is contained in the MOU. Article 2 describes the types of fiscal support that the Friends of provides to the San Francisco Public Library. Specifically, there is an annual support that provides funding for programming, and that is typically assumed and provided uh, as part of our annual accept and expend resolution with the budget process. The other type of fiscal support that the Friends typically provides the library is for capital and special projects and usually for capital that includes furniture fixtures and equipment. Under article 3 you'll see the description of our roles and responsibilities with respect to the annual fund and the capital sources. This describes how we request funding support from the Friends and the disbursement process. It also talks about the reconciliation of expenditures for the um, for the library over the time applicable time period. As I've already mentioned, we do do an annual accept and expend as part of the budget process for the annual support funds. With respect to any capital needs, that may be an annual accept and expend, or an accept and expend that is done either with the budget process or separately, depending upon the timing of the request. Also, in Article Three, it indicates that the Friends and Foundation can apply for grants on behalf of the San Francisco Public Library when we are not eligible to submit directly. Article 5 describes the uses of the library's property for the friends and specifically also calls out the bookstore lease at the main library which the, li- which the department of real estate is currently creating a new lease agreement between the city and friends and foundation. Under article six, along with other boilerplate language, it does mention that the library's proposed MOU is a ten-year term. This is the key difference between our 2017 MOU and the proposed MOU. Under the prior, the total term was six years, three years under the original term and one three-year extension. Also included in the proposed MOU are three exhibits. Exhibit A is the library's capital addendum for the mission capital project that is ongoing currently exhibit B is about the disclosures and obligations and record record-keeping and auditing this has been a long-standing practice of the library under our prior MOU and we were committed to it then and will commit uh, and are committing to it once again the final exhibit is exhibit C and that is this the department's statement of incompatible activities. So that's a quick high-level summary of what's in the MOU. We're respectfully asking for the committee's approval of this proposed MOU, and I am happy to answer any questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Colleagues, do you have any questions? See none, Madam Clerk, can we please open public comment?
1: Yes, thank you, and for the record, noting that Member Chan has joined us, Members of the public who wish to speak on this item, please line up along the curtain wall now. This first speaker may approach the podium and begin your comments. Thank you. Hello, my name is Carrie Blanding. I am the interim executive director of the Friends and Foundation of the San Francisco Public Library. I'm here to provide public comment and support of this
3: MOU and great appreciation for our partners at the library who have worked with us so well to develop this. We're eager to proceed with this MOU and we um, commit to supporting it strongly and complying with everything within it. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Your comments today, next speaker please.
4: Uh, Supervisors, thank you for the opportunity to publicly comment on the approval
5: of the MOU between the library and friends. I'm Matthew Keniston. I have the privilege of working with the professional staff and the board as a board member and current treasurer
6: on the board. Uh, The annual uh, accept and expend was the last time I appeared before this body, and I'm pleased to be back to advocate for approval of the MOU. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for your comments. Are there any other speakers
0: to this item? Madam Chair that completes the public comment. Thank you. Public comment is now closed. Thank you for the very succinct presentation. We have a lot today at GAO so I would like, to, I see no names on the roster for additional questions or any questions so I'd like to move to send item one to the full board with a positive recommendation. Thank you and on that motion, Member Chan? Aye.
1: Chan, aye. Member Engardio? Aye. Engardio, aye. Vice Chair Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Will you please call item two. Item number two is a hearing to receive and review external auditors' annual comprehensive financial reports, single audit, and management letters, if any, related to the City audit for fiscal year June 2021 through June 2022 to present their audit plan for fiscal year 2022 through 2023 as required under Chapter Section 917 and requesting the City's external auditors Macias, Ginny, and O'Connell to report. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, today we will be hearing from our controller's Office and the City's external auditors regarding the annual comprehensive financial reports and single audits for fiscal year 21-22, as well as their audit plan for fiscal year 22-23. These items come through the Government Audit and Oversight Committee each year, and they are important to ensure that our government's accounting and reporting are in compliance with best practices and free of any fraud. So I'd like to welcome Carmen LaFranc, our financial reporting manager for the controller's office, and our external auditors. If I have that wrong, just please correct me. Annie Louie, audit partner from the firm MGO, and Kathy Lai, audit partner from the firm Crow LLP. And I'll turn it over to whomever is presenting. Thank you.
3: and from the controller's office and I also have um, the deputy controller uh, Todd Reedstrom here Um, and we're gonna have the auditors present to you the findings Uh, actually there were no findings but um, present to you the results of the audit and the audit plan Um, so I'll turn it over to um, oh Todd do you want to say something
7: if I may, through the vice chair, a big thank you to Carmen LeFranc, our reporting manager who works extensively with the over 20 different products of the scope of work of each one of these annual audit programs. So on behalf of the controller's office and the controller, Ben Rosenfield, big thank you to the external auditors and the independence that they provide with our financial statements. So thank you for agendizing this and hearing it today.
0: Thank you and I wanna welcome you as well. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
8: Good morning. My name is Annie Louis from MCI's Gina O'Connell MGO. I'm the audit engagement partner for the overall um, citywide audit. Um, today, I have a presentation for you to summarize the audit results for the past two fiscal years. So with that, I will start um, today. We'll cover the, the audit results for fiscal year 21, as well as fiscal year 22. And then we'll go into the audit plan for the uh, fiscal year 23, and then go over accounting updates briefly that may affect the city's financial statements going forward. Going over the audit results over the past two fiscal years, first of all, I want to highlight the scope of audits. As um, the WD controller had mentioned, we We issue over 20 deliverables between the two audit firms. Um, On the left, we have all of the deliverables that are audited by the firm MGO, and then on the right side of the presentation are the deliverables or the reports that are audited by KPMG. The main financial statements is called the Annual Comprehensive Financial Report, or the ACFR for short, as well as a single audit that covers the compliance of federal awards that the city received. I'm happy to report that for both fiscal years, the city had received unmodified opinions on the financial statements as well as the compliance audits, which is the highest level assurance that you can achieve under both audits. There were no deficiencies um, in terms of internal controls over financial reporting or any deficiencies of um, controls over compliance as well. Um, One report that we do issue is called the report to the GAO, which is a direct communication to the committee for our audit results. And that is detailed in the the separate report. This slide highlights some of the more key items I'd like to go over um, briefly. The report goes over the significant accounting policies and practices and highlighting any new accounting pronouncements that may be implemented in that particular fiscal year. Um, there were no new accounting standards in fiscal year 2021, 20, but there were a um, f- five different pronouncements that were implemented in fiscal year 22. Uh, Most of them did not have any significant accounting uh, impact in the financial statements except for the first one listed here, which is um, on leases. It was a new requirement that required the capitalization of certain leases to be reported on the financial statements. And you can refer to the financial statements on uh, details of the impact as well. Um, As you may know, the financial statements does also require estimates to be provided by management. Um, Some of the more key ones are listed here. We... we performed audit procedures to ascertain the reasonableness of those estimates, and we did not find any exceptions. Um, Most of the other items are pretty standard, so I won't go over them in details, but again, all of the information is provided in the required communications to the board, okay? Um, The next section is on our audit plan for fiscal year 23's audit, and I would like to introduce Kathy Lai from Crow LLP, as she'll join me in this part of the presentation.
0: Thank
9: you, Annie. Good morning, everyone. I'm Kathy Lai, an audit partner here with Crow, and on behalf of Crow, we're very pleased to be here with you today. Uh, We were recently engaged by the city to perform the financial statement audits for two departments of the city, the San Francisco Airport as well as the San Francisco Metropolitan Transportation Authority. And I understand that you've had your previous auditors, KPMG, for quite some time, so I thought it would be worthwhile to just briefly introduce the firm to you. Crow is a national, a large national firm with over 5,000 employees within the U.S. Specifically, we have significant investments in California with six offices throughout the state, and the San Francisco office, of course, is down the street. I lead Crow's government practice in California as well as in the West, and I'm also your lead engagement partner from Crow. I think on the next slide, Annie, we'll go over the scope of the audit. All
8: right, so similar to what I presented earlier, um, we have listed all of the different deliverables that are um, audited by the respective firms on the left are the ones that are responsible or that are um, audited by MGO. Um, the one item that is new is item nine, which is the Public Utilities Commission. Um, KPMG was the prior auditor. Through the uh, latest competitive bid process, MGO had, um, had been contracted by the city for, for that uh, enterprise audit. And then on the right are the, are the deliverables by CROW.
9: Right, and that includes, of course, the Departments of uh, San Francisco Airport as well as MTA. Both of them are also the recipient of federal grants, so in addition to financial statement audits, you also see a reference to the single audit, which is the audit required when you you expend federal expenditures um, over a certain amount, which they certainly exceeded. Uh, In addition, there are several agreed-upon procedures that are noted under the Crow column here. Those are just procedures that were requested by the department, typically compliance-related for revenue bonds, any transit-related procedures from the FTA for MTA or passenger facility charges from the airport.
8: On this slide, um, this highlights our audit team on the MGO side. As mentioned, I am the lead partner for the overall engagement. We have separate partners for each team, and you can see on the slide the respective enterprise departments or um, other deliverables that they're in charge of. And we also have a technical reviewer that does a sec- second partner review on all of our deliverables, and his name is David Bulk.
9: And for the Crow team, um, as I mentioned, I'm the lead partner responsible for signing the audit opinions for the two departments. To ensure the proper quality control, we also have two other partners, Brad Shelley, who leads our Crow transportation and airport practices nationally, as well as Tony Boris, who is our lead partner in our Crow national office. As a tribute to Tony's technical expertise, he's actually selected by the AICPA to chair the AICPA State Local Government Expert Panel. And so bringing that expertise from both Tony as well as Brad and myself um, should directly benefit the city. Below us, as you know, the audit is a significant effort for both firms, dedicating thousands of hours uh, each year to complete. And so to properly support this effort, we've dedicated four four Crow managers uh, to lead the efforts. We've got Michelle Blackstock, Erica Alvarez, Tyler Bremley, and Shirley Ha. So this team was specifically chosen for their um, transit and airport experience uh, that relates to the city. And then last but not least, um, I certainly wanted to point out, not on the slide, but certainly part of our team, we have a shared value of commitment to diversity and inclusion. So we do have two subcontractors that are participating at 35% on our contract. It's Yano Accountancy as well as Kevin Harper and Associates, and we're excited about that team. On the next slide that I'll follow, we'll cover some planning communications that are required under our auditing standards. You know, in any audit, it's very important to outline both the auditor responsibilities as well as management. So first, we'll go over the auditor responsibilities. First, we're required to express an opinion on whether the financial statements are fairly stated in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. Um, As auditors, we perform our audits in accordance with generally accepted auditing standards and then also government auditing standards. As I mentioned before, the city is a very large recipient of federal grants and so required to be conducted under government auditing standards as well. So as part of our audit, we will obtain an, an understanding of internal controls over financial reporting really as a basis for designing our remaining audit procedures. And lastly, at the conclusion of our audits, we hope to come and present to you any findings and recommendations that we believe warrant your attention. So those are the auditor responsibilities let's go ahead and pivot to management's responsibilities so very important to note that management is solely responsible for the fair presentation of the financial statements in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles likewise management is also responsible for all the internal controls over the financial reporting. So if management is aware of any significant deficiencies or material weaknesses and in internal controls, they should certainly disclose those matters to the auditors. During our field work, management is also responsible for providing us access to all information relevant to the financial statements, as well as unrestricted access to their management with whom it's necessary to obtain audit evidence. Uh, management is also responsible under government auditing standards certainly to comply with laws and regulations, and then likewise inform the auditors of any known material violations or instances of fraud those are manager responsibilities the audit committee can work with management uh, to provide proper oversight for the financial reporting process as well as internal control environment certainly setting the highest level of ethical standards as uh, management performs their responsibilities so that's a summary of the responsibilities let's go ahead and pivot to the audit timeline our audits are typically divided into four stages planning interim field work final year-end field work as well as reporting the MGO team began their planning and risk assessment during April. Crow was later engaged in June 2023, after which we combined our planning and our interim field work through August. So now both Crow and MGO are in the heat of final field work, and we intend to issue financial statements and audit reports by the end of November and hope to present the audit results and complete the other required reports between December through March. So with that, I'll turn it back to Annie to cover some accounting updates for the new accounting standards by the Governmental Accounting Standards Board.
8: Annie? Thank you. So the last section of this presentation are the accounting updates that may impact the financial statements of the city overall. Um, in the current fiscal year that we're under um, that are under audit currently, uh, fiscal year 23, there are four new standards. Um, 91 can do it that, 94, which is known as PPP, public-private and public public partnerships. 96 relates to subscription-based information technology arrangements or otherwise known as leases for IT-related software. And then um, statement 99 as well for some updates to previously issued standards. Um, so we're working with management right now to assess the impact of the financial statements and at the end of the um, audit process, we'll report back on the audit results. There are uh, some other upcoming accounting standards that may impact the financial statements for the city as well in the upcoming years, um, and they're listed here on the slide. In the next fiscal year, fiscal year 24, there will be two accounting standards. Um, 99 is a correction or update of previously issued accounting standards, and this one will relate to financial guarantees as well as derivative instruments. Um, Statement number 100 relates to accounting changes and error corrections, so it is an update on how previously any error corrections or accounting changes may be included in the financial statements. And then lastly, for fiscal year 25, um, statement 101 would be effective, and that relates to compensated absences, which is basically accrued vacation and payroll. With that, Kathy and I would be happy to take any questions that you may have.
0: Supervisor Chan.
10: Thank you, um, Vice Chair. Uh, Stephanie, and I uh, I think my question is just uh, from a very late person uh, trying to understand the list of audits. Uh, it listed uh, SFO as a single audit. and Could you just walk me through and help me understand what single audit means?
9: Yeah, absolutely. So the single audit is an audit of federal grants. It's required under the um, OMB. And if the entity expends more than 750000 in expenditures in a given fiscal year, they're required to have this audit. Um, that's for the airport, but certainly do you want to respond for this as right. a whole?
8: Um, usually an entity has a government-wide and organizational-wide single audit for the city. Um, the city has elected to have a separate single audit for the airport as well as the MTA and for all other departments um, that do expand federal assets, they're subject to a city-wide single audit. Um, part of that resulted from uh, an OIG review, um, the office of inspector in general. They do come and look at auditors' papers and make recommendations. I can't believe how many years, uh, I can't remember how many years it's been, but the OIG had a comment about how the airport really should have its own separate audit because of revenue diversion requirements that are specific to public airports. And so that was one of the reasons why the airport has spun off um, and had its own single audit. And um, so the city overall has three separate single audit reports
10: and then um, again through the chair and um, the question is uh, specifically for the airport with the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of expenditure is it just any expenditure including operational and and capital or just specifically for operation
9: it's expenditures that were funded with federal grants
10: specifically and And and
9: the largest program is the airport improvement program and and uh, certainly that's a large share of federal expenditures.
10: Understood. And then with the uh, 750,000 threshold, um, how how does that come about as a determination for dollar amount?
9: It's actually just set by the OMB, yeah.
10: Thank you. Thank you, Chair.
0: Thank you. Any other questions from members? Madam Clerk, can we open this up for public comment?
1: Your members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up along the wall to your right. All speakers will have two minutes to speak. The first speaker may approach the podium.
0: Madam Chair, there are no speakers to this item. Thank you. Public comment is now closed. I want to thank everyone for the presentation and um, just acknowledge that this plan and receiving these audits are extremely important. It appears we are in good hands in terms of who, are, um, who will be conducting the audits. Uh, they are actually uh, my favorite part um, my favorite thing to read here at City Hall, and this hearing is a routine matter and satisfies the board's responsibility to review the audit plan per Section 9.117 of the Charter. And with that, since this is a hearing, I'd like to move to file this item. Thank you. And on that motion, Member Chan? Aye.
1: Chan, aye. Member Engardio? And Guardio, aye. Vice Chair Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, I. You have three ayes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Will you please call item three? Yes. Item number three is a hearing on the 2022 through 2023 Civil Grand Jury Report entitled, Time to Get to Work, San Francisco's Hiring Crisis. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Madam Clerk. This hearing will be spearheaded by Supervisor Preston, who is out sick today. He has requested that the committee continue this item. And before I make that motion, Madam Clerk, let's open public comment on the continuance. Any members of the public in
1: the chamber that would like to speak to the continuance of item number three, please approach the podium.
0: Madam Chair, there are no speakers to this item. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment is now closed. I move to continue this item to the call of the chair. Thank you.
1: And on that motion, Vice Chair, or sorry, Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Engardio. Engardio, aye. Vice Chair Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Please call item four. Item number four is a hearing on the 2023 through 2024 civil grand jury report entitled Not Making the Grade, San Francisco Shortage of Credentialed Teachers. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Today we will be hearing the first batch of this year's civil grand jury reports. Each year the civil grand jury investigates and scrutinizes our city's conduct of public business and makes findings and recommendations for city entities, which in turn have an opportunity to engage with those findings and recommendations. As we all know, it's an important process that helps us build trust with the public and improve the operations of government. Thank you to the jurors for their service and a special thanks to those of you in attendance today. Before I hand this over to Supervisor Chan, I want to recognize Karen Connard, who has served as a foreperson and wanted to say a few words. Karen, welcome. Good
3: morning, I'm Karen Kennard and I served as the foreperson of the 2022-2023 Civil Grand Jury. We issued four reports this term and we're very grateful today for the opportunity to discuss the first two of those reports. But I'd like to start by thanking the members of the GAO, all the city representatives who are here today, and especially the many, many city employees and managers and public citizens who assisted our jury this year in our investigations that culminated in these reports. Before introducing our first presenter, I'd just like to say a little bit about our jury. Supervisor Stephanie described the overall process and purpose of the jury, but I'd like to tell you what happened this year. The jury is composed of 19 volunteers from across San Francisco, We served a one-year term from July 1st, 2022 until June 30th of 2023. And as Supervisor Stephanie mentioned, we investigated city operations and made recommendations for improvement. Um, The jury, you may know, can't opine on issues of policy. So our investigations focused on existing city procedures and operations. This year, we were a diverse group. We had 13 men and six women, We ranged in age from 41 to 79, no names. Uh, Eight of us are people of color, four identify as LGBTQ, and we came from all walks of life, literally. Um, We had a physician, a nurse, several attorneys, uh, several educators, a labor steward, a contracts manager, a licensed general contractor, a business consultant, a marketer software developers and data analysts, a transportation planner and an investigator. We started our term post pandemic fully remote, but we returned to our city hall meeting room about midway through and coming back into this building gave us a great sense of the gravitas and importance of our work. And we appreciate the opportunity to meet here. The work was hard, but very rewarding. And we hope that some people who are listening today will consider applying for the next civil grand jury information about the application process is on the San Francisco Civil Grand Jury website. So each year's jury decides for itself what aspects of city government to investigate. You might know that it requires a supermajority of 12 jurors to approve a topic for investigation. So as you can imagine with that diverse group, we had a number of spirited debates about what to investigate and what not to investigate. You might be interested to know that not all of the investigations that we approved this year resulted in a report. If an investigation found that the city is already doing everything that the jury might've recommended, we did not publish a report. But in four cases, our investigations found some room for improvement, which led to four published reports containing specific concrete recommendations. If these recommendations are implemented, we believe they will improve the effectiveness of city government and promote better transparency and accountability. Our reports address San Francisco's shortage of certified teachers, the city's efforts to help its struggling small businesses, the city's hiring crisis and the contracting methods that San Francisco uses to provide homelessness services. So we're proud to present the first two of those reports today and with that, I would like to introduce our first presenter, Pauline Sofa.
0: Pauline. Sure. Um, b- before we do that, I'm going to turn it over to Supervisor Chan, but I just I did wanted to thank you again for your public service. This is so important. And I mentioned in the other item um, earlier that one of my favorite things to read is audits, is also these reports. So thank you so much again for all of you being here today. And I'm gonna turn it over to Supervisor Chan who will then make opening remarks and then conduct the hearing. Thank you.
10: Thank you, Chair. And just, again, to uh, want to concur with what uh, our Chair has just mentioned. Supervisor Stephanie mentioned that um, we're, we are very grateful uh, to the civil grand jury um, service. Uh, also very grateful that civil grand jury actually has decided to take on this topic, very uh, critical. And I also think that uh, it's also very timely um, in a sense where uh, as we continue to look at a school district that is burdened with deficits, significant deficits, um, and to see the a significant also loss in enrollment i think that what you have uh, taking on is critical for us to evaluate and see um, not just for the board supervisors but for all elected leaders in the city um, to understand um, the problem and so how can we actually move forward for that i'm very grateful and, and really um, appreciative going through this report um, today and also um, a lot of food for thoughts even though Uh, with the recommendation and some of the very specific Feedback is not directed at the board of supervisors. I think that for this board, um, learning more about this from this, based on this uh, civil grand jury report, um, there there ought to be some thoughts about both um, the future of um, how this board uh, will support in terms of both policy uh, as well as budget allocation, funding supports. Um, those things that should be in consideration based on this civil grand jury report today. Thank you.
11: Good morning, uh, supervisors. My name is Pauline Sofa, and I'm a member of the 2022 to 2023 San Francisco Civil Grand Jury. We're here this, this day to discuss our report on San Francisco's shortage of credentialed teachers. As a reminder, our jury consisted of 19 volunteers serving from July 1st, 2022, to the, oh, thank you. 2022 to the end of June, we conducted research in strict confidentiality. That means we cannot say whom we talked to, what questions we asked, or what answers we received. I can only share the findings and recommendations that we arrived at in our report. There is one other note, which is that two members of our jury did not participate in this investigation because of ties to the district. we we chose to investigate how many credential teachers are teaching in San Francisco schools because we were familiar with headlines that the district loses nine to 10% of its teachers every year. So we wanted to know whether they were being replaced and because we believe that a quality education for every student in San Francisco is a matter of justice and economic prosperity. It's also the law in California that every classroom be assigned a credentialed teacher. The district's own website discusses its policy goal of staffing classrooms with credentialed teachers. To conduct our investigation, we first reviewed the data. In recent years, the state has made it possible for citizens to learn about classroom staffing, teacher salaries, and benefits with a data tool called the School Accountability Report Card. These report cards contain data that each school district submits to the state every year. They make it possible to compare each school and each school district throughout California. The data is very dense, so the next thing we did was talk to people to help understand it. We met with administrators members of the board of education, educators and teacher educators. We sought to understand why does San Francisco have a teacher shortage? Our first finding was that the district does not have enough credential teachers to give a quality education to every student. To state the state formally defines what counts as a credential teacher. San Francisco has fewer credentialed teachers than the Bay Area average and statewide. It also has more of what is called ineffective teachers, which refers to cases where classrooms uh, are staffed by someone who does not have the correct credential for a given subject. They may not even have a credential at all. As you can see across the state, 83% of classrooms were staffed by fully credentialed teachers. The number was about the same for the Bay Area, but San Francisco was worse. We looked at the Bay Area counties, nine of them, Sacramento and Los Angeles. San Francisco was second worst after Alameda. As you can see in this slide, San Francisco has more than twice as many ineffective teachers as the statewide average and about fifty percent more than the bay area average compared to the bay area sacramento and los angeles san francisco was once again second worst after alameda our interviews told us that recruiting and retaining teachers is hard because of low pay as you can see the first year salary for credentialed teachers is only about 60% of the federal government's definition of low income. It's also lower than many other districts in the Bay Area. This leads to teachers being poached. For transparency, our report lists the starting salaries for every district in the Bay Area. We rank embarrassingly behind nearby districts. Of course, there is more to a job than money. Benefits are also important. Here, we believe that San Francisco is competitive. However, we looked at recruiting materials and news releases to see how often the district promotes benefits like its pension program as well as the mayor's housing subsidies. We believe that recruiting suffers because these benefits are not publicized enough. Finally, recruiting and retention is currently suffering from an unforced error. As you know, the district's administration of payroll is a fiasco, which is widely publicized. San Francisco cannot afford more bad news when it's trying to recruit and retain quality teachers. It would have helped our investigation if the district collected the reasons why candidates do not accept job offers in the district and the reason why credentialed teachers leave their jobs. Other employers collect this information using standard human resources and recruiting software by performing exit interviews. We learn that San Francisco Unified does not. This is a missed opportunity to address a crisis. We have one more note about our investigation which is that the district does not always respond to our inquiries. Unfortunately, this isn't new. 25 years ago, another jury also had difficulty working with the district on an investigation. Now, we believe that nobody was trying to obstruct us. The issue was that people didn't even know what a civil grand jury was. We had to work with the city attorney's office to convince some administrators to respond to our requests. We believe that every city department should be aware of the work that the grand jury does and the fact that the new law requires their cooperation. In response to our findings, the jury issued six recommendations. Those are detailed in our reports. They boil down to this. We called on the district to conduct additional research into recruiting, retention, salaries and benefits, and to make the research public. The district agreed. We called on the district to do more publicity about the competitive benefits available to teachers. The district agreed. We asked for the controller's assistant to research the district's payroll fiasco and explain exactly what went so horribly wrong. The controller declined to help. We called on the district to do what other employers do and collect recruiting and exit interview data. The district agreed. And finally, we called on the district to inform its staff about the civil grand jury. The district agreed. We expect to hear more about those groups responses today. As you know, these critical matters were on the table during the negotiations that narrowly averted a strike. We believe that your work as supervisors can assist these recommendations by using your influential platform to ensure they are met. The recommendations are clear, achievable, and they're vital to address the city's shortage of credential teachers. Our children certainly deserve no less. I want to thank you for your attention today and stand available to answer your questions. Thank you.
10: And I think uh, we thank you so much for the report. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the thorough ones uh, that I'm also seeing with all 65 pages of it. Just thank you so much for the presentation, for the summary um, based on that um, detailed report. I understand that we also have SFUSD here uh, from the San Francisco Unified School District um, as a response to the um, civil grand jury report, and we have Hong Mei Peng, head of communications and external affairs here.
11: Do I be seated?
10: Thank you, please.
12: Good morning, Madam Vice Chair, Supervisor Chan, Supervisor Engardio, and members of the grand civil grand jury. Thank you so much for your service and for the report. Um, my name is Hong Mei Pang. I'm the head of communications and external affairs at SFUSD. And today I'm joined by the San Francisco Board of Education President Kevin Bogus, my colleagues, Dr. Rosa Coronado, interim head of labor. Sven Irvin, Senior Executive Director of Human Resources, and Laura Melgarejo, Policy Communications Coordinator at SFUSD. We really appreciate this opportunity to present our response to the report. And before we dive in, we do want to appreciate the civil grand jury for their service for this report. Um, and the relevant findings and recommendations. We also want to thank the mayor's office, the controller's office for their responses and ongoing collaboration with us to address the critical challenges and opportunities associated with this important issue. I think we have a deck if we can get that pulled up please. Thank you, next slide. SFUSD has grounded our response in our mission, which is that at SFUSD, we are deeply committed to to providing every day, each and every student, the quality instruction and equitable support required to thrive in the 21st century. And we do agree that a quality public education is the most important asset that a community can provide to its youth and society at large. SFUSD is deeply passionate as an institution and as individuals in ensuring that every student receives a quality education. Next slide. To that end, our board has set three very ambitious goals aimed at improving student outcomes across the district around third grade literacy, eighth grade math, and set our students up for success so that they can graduate college and career ready. We recognize that our educators are one of the most, if not the most, important asset and resource critical to helping our students achieve their goals. We deeply value our employees and know that as a district, there is room for continuous improvement, especially in service of our students, their families, and our staff. Did want to point out and recognize that we do offer competitive salaries, paid professional development, robust benefit packages, and an inclusive and equity-centered work environment. Amid a national teacher shortage, we have successfully hired almost 600 teachers for this school year in the recent months. We believe that we are on the right path to steering SFUSD into a vibrant future, and there have been and will be bumps along the way, but we are very proud that our teachers, staff, and administrators provide the kinds of service and exceptional outcomes um, in service of our students. Next slide. So SFUSD submitted our response to the civil grand jury on September 1st, 2023. We did provide a detailed response to the report findings and recommendation. Although the district does not necessarily agree with some of the numbers or assumptions, what is important are the concepts that are being conveyed in the report, and we recognize that we have to be able to address the concerns that are very real, that are expressed by the civil grand jury, and we see value in addressing the bigger picture. Therefore, it is with that understanding that we are are shared um, in the values of student outcomes in our response. We recognize that we have experienced substantial challenges over the past years, including declining enrollment, staffing shortages, and the fiscal emergency. Research has shown that while these trends are concerning, they are not unique to San Francisco. We will be sharing today with you the depth of the challenge and how we are meeting the moment to address them. Also, since the report and responses were filed, we have made significant headway to adopt remedies aligned with the recommendations that were provided. The superintendent worked with new commissioners to practice good governance, and we will be working to provide a report to our board of education on our progress made by the end of the school year to increase public transparency. Per the recommendation of the civil grand jury, we have been working very hard to fill critical leadership positions after experiencing a significant turnover. Some of the, this. Critical positions were filled specifically to address the systemic issues that contributed to the findings that were cited by the civil grand jury, such as in human resources. And additionally, we're committed to working with our labor partners, city agencies, public and private philanthropic partners to ensure that we are attracting, hiring, cultivating, and retaining talented educators in San Francisco. We're working with our partners at the Department Department of Children, Youth and Their Families to leverage community-based assets to ensure that we are able to serve our students and families. Following, I will be sharing a few data points with you to provide more evidence of our assessment and progress towards the goals. First, we want to address the important findings that were detailed in the jury's report. The district agreed that SFUSD students deserve a high quality education, and to achieve this goal, the district must employ an adequate number of credentialed teachers. However, the teacher shortage crisis does not belong to SFUSD alone. As recently as December 2022, the Commission on Teacher Credentialing issued a report regarding the teacher shortage that has plagued all of California for the past several years. In April of this year, California Superintendent of Public Instruction noted that the teacher shortage has negatively impacted all of California in such a way that the state legislature must implement new laws to assist local school districts. California's Legislative Analyst Office noted in the February 2022 report that hundreds of millions of dollars have been and will be spent specifically on a teacher shortage crisis that has been documented by the US Department of Education and the state of California going back to the early 1990s. The district is committing resources in the form of staffing, funding, materials, and the difficult decisions around resource alignment in order to address the local impacts of statewide and national teacher shortages, as well as the fiscal impact of declining enrollment that is experienced throughout many large urban school districts across the area. Next slide. We have also long acknowledged that the payroll crisis is unacceptable it is unacceptable and has been one of the most damaging issues of the last several months. The district has prioritized the remediation of the district's payroll system and the public has received several updates on the fiscal emergency which outlines the corrective measure taken to date. We have demonstrated remarkable progress in addressing the payroll state of emergency. Since the declaration of the state of emergency last year, consistent and ongoing efforts to stabilize the system have taken place. As you can trace with the purple line on this chart, at the height of the payroll emergency there were over 11,000 tickets that represent employee issues with Empower SFR payroll system. We have since brought the ticket number down to slightly over 2,000. This is a key indicator of progress, along with the reduction of number of systemic issues as well as employees who have been impacted, and also how quickly we're able to resolve issues that were reported. In addition to the infrastructure that has been stood up through the command center, we have also filled critical vacancies across HR, business services, the Department of Technology, to be able to effectively address systems and root causal issue with our payroll system. Lastly, we've also partnered with the City, the Controller's Office, the San Francisco Health Services System, the Department of Human Resources to address these challenges as, as we have to work together to do so. There is an interagency governance team that includes the Controller's office to provide ongoing monitoring and oversight internally, and this governance team meets on a bi-weekly basis to provide oversight of our progress to stabilize the system. The superintendent also provides an update on the pay- payroll state of emergency at every regular board of education meeting that happens monthly and will continue to provide accurate, timely and consistent updates to the public through our website that has been stood up on this issue. Lastly, I want to highlight a few of our ongoing efforts to attract, hire, and retain, and also cultivate homegrown, qualified educators and teachers at SFUSD by engaging with partnerships with our labor and community partners, as well as with the city. Most recently and notably, SFUSD and our labor partners at the United Educators of San Francisco have have reached a tentative agreement which includes significant compensation packages. It includes a $9,000 salary increase for teachers in the 23-24 school year. Teachers will also receive an additional 5% raise for the 24-25 school year, which will be phased in and in full effect by January 2025 if the tentative agreement is to be ratified. Paraeducators will also receive a minimum starting salary of $30 an hour or an 8% raise, whichever is greater for the school year in 23-24. For 24-25, paraeducators will receive an additional 5% salary increase for the 24-25 school year, which will be phased in and will be in full effect by January 25. We recognize that we have to take a systemic approach to address staffing shortages, especially as it relates to our teachers. Beyond incentivizing teachers to come to work at SFUSD, we're committed to bolstering our educator pipeline, which is critical to ensuring that we're reversing the trend of teacher shortages. At SFUSD, we've developed a number of innovative strategies to recruit and retain educators, including through our in-house credential programs, our teacher residency program, and our para-to-teacher program. Our efforts to retain educators include paid professional development, offering one-on-one coaching and capacity building for new teachers, bonuses and more. And we invite anyone who has the desire to work with young people and help them be educated, become strong and thoughtful members of our society to join our workforce. For anyone who's interested in teaching positions, we're also pleased to outline the variety of avenues someone can take uh, in order to be eligible to teach. Lastly, our HR teams have also actively promoted employee benefits per the recommendations of the Civil Grand Jury Report. Um, we have um, initiated a recent campaign called Webinar Wednesdays um, to encourage staff to learn more about their benefits ranging from healthcare to sabbaticals, retirement, and other life event planning opportunities. We are currently gearing up to publicize teacher housing opportunities and availability at the Shirley Chisholm Housing Village, um, which is dedicated to um, 100% teacher and educator housing, and um, we look forward to providing more opportunities and removing any informational barriers for our staff by promoting these opportunities through our channels internally and also externally as well. So with that, I'm going to conclude our uh, response to the Civil Grand Jury report. Thank you so much for your time and um, to the Civil Grand Jury again.
10: Thank you. Um, through the chair, um, this is a question. Uh, just wanted to have a follow up with uh, SFUSD. Um, you know, uh, this is wanted to go back to the slide uh, specifically on page six, um, talk about the ongoing effort to stabilize the uh, payroll issues. You know, uh, clearly that uh, according to the civil grand jury report, the payroll uh, fiasco, as labeled, um, is one of the critical oh, critical elements to why um, Contribute they, what they believe, based on the report, contribute to the shortage of our teacher, especially credentialed teachers. Um, in this case, just wanted to have a better understanding based on the slide that you indicated clearly, you know, from uh, well over 11,000 people or 11,000 cases uh, to two thousand, roughly 2,000 cases. Can we actually translate that into individual term, meaning how many total teachers do you currently have? And uh, with that, Uh, Out of that um, 2,086 cases that are currently still pending, um, are they 2,086 individual cases, or are they um, just—so they're not individuals, they're just cases— that, that is correct. Thank
12: you, Supervisor, for that question. That is correct. So um, the way that the monitoring and dashboard works is that we have different indicators. One is ticketing, which is what is reflected on this graph. These are reported and known cases. So each, for example, employee may submit multiple tickets um, during the lifetime of their employment and usage of Empower SF, and this ranges from sort of um, user interface issue with the system all the way to you know if they are having significant issues with their paycheck. So uh, through the case management system that we have set up, uh, we've been able to you know not just resolve the number of tickets, but also with the speed and expediency, be able to expedite uh, tickets that might be reported as a result of um, pay discrepancies. Um, currently, the last reported number that we have for employees is 1,791. Um, so those are the number of employees that still have outstanding cases with Um, the payroll system. Uh, We have recently uh, relaunched a case management 2.0 where we're moving the uh, ticketing and case management system into human resources as a critical function to be able to better serve our employees. Um, And since then we've been able to close out a significant number of tickets and we look forward to continued progress with this
10: effort. So let me clarify um, what is the total teacher currently employed? Um Total number,
12: total number of teachers that are currently employed. I'm wondering if um, Mr. Irvin could come up and provide some of those details. He's the senior executive director of human resources.
10: Thank you. And before he comes and answers the total number and employment of teach, employed teachers uh, currently on payroll, I should say. And what you, I just want to clarify what you just said is 1,700, a little bit over 1,700 teachers, individual teacher. That actually have the opening open tickets of the two roughly over a little bit over two thousand.
12: Uh, the the aggregate seventeen hundred ninety one. That's total number of employees who have submitted tickets. Um, they are not representative entirely of payroll issues. These could range from, you know, I'm having um, a question about how to submit my timesheet through Empower SF, such as other user interface issues, all the way to if they have an issue with their paychecks. Those
10: issues are expedited
12: and resolved um, as soon as we are able to.
10: Um, I'm going to come back to the as soon as we're able to. Let's drill down what that means as soon as, you know, as soon as, as five days, as soon as so within, business the, days. Within, the pay, within the pay cycle. So, so that's monthly, right? Because the teachers, educators uh, pay cycle, it's on a monthly basis, not in a biweekly.
12: Uh, we run biweekly and monthly pay cycles. Um, and so we, we are committed essentially to making sure that, you know, I, I, I can grab that data point for you um, and come back to that if, if you would just give me a
10: couple of minutes. Of course. Thank you.
4: Good morning, uh, supervisors. Good morning. Uh, so, to answer the question um, about the number of teachers, um, that number is approximately 4,500.
10: 4,500 um,
4: out of out of approximately 10,000 uh, employees at the district.
10: So, out of the uh, r- roughly of 10,000 total um, of employees, out of which. 45, roughly 4,500 are teachers, yes. and out of which of that's 4,500 currently have opening tickets about cases is roughly a 1,700.
4: Right, and the 1,700, um, I just want to clarify, is not only teachers, so that's 1,700 mm-hmm. out of the 10,000 empo- total employees. Okay.
10: I, I think it would be tremendously helpful. Again, this is only specifically drilling down to the civil grand jury report. You know, I I I wanna just separate from just overall the management of human resources and the payroll issue with the district I think uh, for today's purpose in civil grand jury report it's really about teachers and you know recruitment of teachers shortage of teachers and um, so just trying to have a better understanding in terms of the ratio of those who are currently on payroll total and then those who are actually suffering payroll issue Um, that's that's all I'm trying to get at you know and in terms of understanding the percentage do you happen to have that information or do we need to wait for that information
4: um, I, I don't have that information currently. Um, I think to the point that was uh, made, n- not all I think we, we'll have to do some more drilling down to, to assess how many out of that 1,700 are actually payroll issues. Yeah. Um, and And I think also, to hong point about um, as soon as possible, some of the issues may be clerical errors that are fairly easy and quick to resolve. Some of those errors are con- system configuration issues that may take longer to resolve and quite often may impact a number of employees, um, and we have to work with our, our um, Department of Technology as well as our... Um, technology consultants with Empower to help us fix the system issues that are resulting in issues in pay.
10: Thank you. I think overall in terms of just again going back to the opening tickets and how many and the, uh, in terms of the ratio versus of those currently on your payroll uh, for your teachers, um, I think that really again based on the civil grandeur report there's a couple of things here, both the payrolls and understanding the benefits. And sometimes uh, the way that I see payroll and and throughout just both in hiring and retaining a a worker, most often time is that those two things, payroll and benefits go hand in hand. Um, It's not just about understanding payroll issues, because, I, right, I think that some of the tickets, as you indicated, they're not just about payroll issue. They could also be others. And I think that is um, where the civil grand jury kind of talked about. It's not highly publicized about benefits. It's not very clear. And I think that the best time to catch your workers all across, not just the teachers, but all across, but specifically now we're talking about teachers, is to, at the moment of, identifying payroll issue is also to make sure that they understand about their benefits that it's available to them and in, in the long term so that you can continue to retain them just just a thought based on the civil Grand jury report that drilling down it's the reason why drilling down the payroll issue becomes so critical because then that also comes with benefits issues that they they can understand um, could I Drill down just a little bit more, um, and then Hami can come back and answer the previous questions. When when we actually go on, when a teacher uh, identify a payroll issue, they go online, they punch in and take it, you know, assuming it's online, what will happen to them next uh, in terms of, like, do, will there be a HR person to say, you're scheduled to have a conversation so that we can understand more specific, meaning the ones that are not just like, how do I sign up? You know, it's Absolutely. a bit more very specific on payroll issue.
4: Right, so um, the, as, as hong May mentioned, uh, we've recently moved the case management function, um, part of it, I will say not all of it, but part of it into HR. There's also a separate team of case managers who are supporting payroll. Um, and I think it's it's also important to clarify, if it's not clear, that at least at the school district, payroll and HR are two separate departments. Um, in a lot of places, they're in the same department, but with us, they are not. Um, and so that the case management team really serves as intake. So within the first 24 hours, um, that employee will receive a response, we've gotten your ticket, we'll look, we're looking into it, we'll follow up with you as quickly as possible. Um, Also, uh, one new kind of feature that we've implemented is that that case management team will also be doing what we call air traffic control, right? Sometimes employees are not aware what their actual issue is, so they'll say, this is what I saw on my pay stub, Uh, right? But, you know, when it comes to HR... HR may say, oh, this is actually a payroll issue, and we'll make sure it gets to a payroll person who can support, or vice versa, payroll can say, actually the salary that was entered in the system is off, and so HR needs to correct the salary. Um, so what was causing a lot of the delays in the past was that people were submitting tickets, but they were going to the wrong people, or they were going to the people who could not actually address their issue. And so we've gotten a lot better at both the employee interface where they enter their issue and also on the back end within the departments to say, ah, that's that's not the right place for this topic, let me get it to the person who can actually provide an answer.
10: And what Um, is the timeline determination, meaning an employee submit the tickets and then the case manager receive it and be able to sort to say, hey, this is actually a payroll issue or this is an HR issue.
4: Within 24 hours.
10: Within 24 hours of receiving the... Yes. um, And then once that happens, once you identify who's responsible or what issue it is, what happened next?
4: Um, after that, the, the people, if, if the person who receives the ticket is the person who can resolve it, they resolve it the same day and let the employee know, I've resolved your issue, this is what you should see on your next pay stub, and I'm closing the ticket. Um, but there are, there are many levels of complexity to some of the issues that employees are facing, and so um, there, there are weekly meetings actually many times per week between human resources and payroll, human resources and case management and payroll. Um, So making sure we're pulling all the folks together. Um, There is a specific meeting that happens every Tuesday to talk about like the really complex cases that come through that require high levels of, of cross-functional support to identify. Um, And I, and I will say that, you know, again, some, some, Uh, tickets, I read it and and in three minutes I've already given an answer to the employee and it's fine. Um, But there are some tickets that require like a person to spend many days researching the the layers and and the complex issues that that person is experiencing. Um, And we also are often working directly with HSS. Sometimes we identify an issue that we need HSS support to fix, um, as you were talking about benefits, and sometimes HSS identifies issues that they refer to us to fix. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of collaboration across the district and across the city.
10: So it sounds to me that like it could be, as soon as it could resolve a case, it's about 24 to 48 hours. Yes. What is the longest case pending for the period?
4: Um, it, there are some cases that it has, it has been months.
10: Yeah, and yeah. then I think, again, would like to drill down to, for those that actually are months, how many are those outstanding? Do you know?
4: I, I do not know off the top of my head, no.
10: And um, this is, look, I think that the, through the chair, I, I think it's very normal to have HR questions. It's very normal to have um, operational questions and that's why we need HR, that's why we need payroll, that's why they're there to answer the questions. It becomes a so-called, again, the fiasco is when it's overwhelming larger people are not getting um, through and that it's prolonged uh, issue that is not resolved for more than, I would say, one pay period, one, and be it that means either by two weeks or a month, depending on your pay period. And uh, accumulatively, now that looking at it, that's the problem. So I, I, I would love to uh, circle back, um, since you don't have the information today, is that you know out of that 2,000 tickets, that is still currently pending. How many of those are actually have been beyond a pay period and have yet to be resolved? And so to help us understand uh, what is the the situation and out of which how many of them are actually our teachers? Again, help us understand um, the ratio between the teachers who are uh, you know currently under payroll and versus how many are actually impacted uh, by this uh, empower. Um, SF situation that has been more than one pay period. Thank you so much for all your work. I really appreciate it. Um, Chair, if I may, could I acknowledge um, our uh, Board of Education President, uh, Kevin Bogus is here, and just wanted to see if it is possible to give him a chance to make uh, also remark on behalf of the district. Of course.
13: Uh, thank you so much, supervisors, um, for being here today, for having this conversation. Thank you so much again to the civil grand jury for all the work that you've done. Um, I think the, the big thing that I would say as a board member who has been elected to be responsible for the district and for the families in it, um, the issues around our payroll HR system has probably been one of like the, the biggest concerns for me as a board member and also I think one of our one of our biggest failures of kind of getting into a place we could have a problem that could kind of fester out in such a way and really prevent our ability to provide the best education possible to students. Um, since I've been on the board, um, we have been working to address a lot of the issues that the civil grand jury brought up. I think our staff has done a great job of taking us from a very low place. where We didn't have enough staff resources, enough intention in place to really manage the crisis to being in a place now where it's manageable and we're working towards a more long-term solutions. Um, And so I think a lot of appreciation for staff and their commitment I think as a district though we do have a lot of issues that we're trying to solve specifically around our payroll system around our staffing shortages but also we're still dealing with a huge outcome gap for our students of color and so I think for us we're really looking at how can we as a board work with the superintendent and his team to really shift the structure of the district to ensure that we're getting to the root cause of some of these problems and ensure we don't kind of end up in the same place that we've ended up before and really creating a higher level of accountability and reporting for the superintendent and his staff. So we as a board can be more aware and make sure that we solve these problems before they kind of grow um, and explode in the way that these have. And so yeah, just a lot of appreciation for the work that's been done, the commitment to the school district that the board of supervisors and the mayor has shown. Um, And thanks again to the civil grand jury for um, committing their time to helping improve the school district and making these recommendations. Thank you so much.
10: Thank you.
0: Do we have any other questions or comments? Most of my questions I think were covered, so I think we'll turn now to public comment. Thank
1: you, Madam Vice-Chair. Are there any members of the public who wish to speak to this item? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right, my left. Each speaker will be granted two minutes. and the first speaker may approach the podium.
5: Good morning, supervisors and guests. My name is Michael Carboy. I'm a resident of San Francisco. I have three points to make. First, I would like to applaud the San Francisco Civil Grand Jury for the year 22 and 23 for this fine report. Secondly, I would like to urge the Board of Supervisors to keep the Unified School District under a very close microscope. Third, I would like to share my disappointment in the commentary provided by the Unified School District today, rather than considering the degree or or the scope and scale of management failure and business process failure within the Unified School District that led to the situation, we have heard from a school district that instead chooses to engage in a dialogue of what about-ism Citing other problems in the state rather than focusing on fixing their own house I would urge the boards of board of supervisors to keep a close eye on the school district because the Recommendations coming back from the school district today do not appear to be consistent with fixing the problem for the students. Thank you
1: Thank you for your comments today next speaker, please
14: Thank you, Supervisors. Appreciate your giving attention to this uh, civil grand jury report. I am a member of the prior civil grand jury um, and and I was very happy with this report. I'm speaking as an individual today. My name is Lawrence Lee. I'm a San Francisco native, product of San Francisco Public Schools, and our public schools are an incredible resource for the city. At the same time, as we know that It is such a resource. It is such a sense of so much opportunity because of all these gaps that we see. Um, For those of you that haven't been paying attention to the Board of Education, the resources, the teachers that are not going into the classroom are affecting students daily. And, And it brings student families to consider bringing their families into private schools or moving out. Here's an example. There is a retired teacher who was mentioned at a prior public comment to the Board of Education, who wanted to teach as a substitute teacher. She had all the paperwork, she was all good, but she was not brought in even till today. This is not just a question of payroll. This is a question of how this district staff handles HR. I respect their work, I respect their service. So many people see how much is being done clearly for payroll and so many things, but this is a situation where This is what people have called a house on fire. There are so many things that are not right. So please continue to pay attention to how this school district can make improvements. Thank you.
1: Thank you for your comments. Are there any other members of the public that would like to speak to this item? Madam Vice Chair, there are no other members.
0: Thank you, Madam Clerk. And I've just been informed that we do have one more presentation, so I'm not yet going to close public comment out of an abundance of caution if somebody wanted to respond on the um, last presenter. And I'll turn it back over to Supervisor Chan.
10: My apology, Chair. And uh, this is uh, my uh, oversight uh, that I ought to call on our controller, Todd Ristrom, uh, Deputy uh, Controller, um, to present, to do the final presentation to conclude the uh, civil grand jury report. Thank you.
7: Thank you very much. Todd Reachstrom, Deputy Controller. Um, It was noted by the Civil Grand Jury, and I'd also like to thank them for their good work, um, that they had two recommendations that pertain to our office. Um, By way of context, we have participated um, with senior level input over the last year, providing um, providing participation, active participation in the Corrective Action Plan Governance Steering Committee that's overseeing the payroll portion of the project providing guidance on lessons learned from the city's implementation of our payroll system as well as the over 300 process steps. It takes every two weeks to correctly issue them and so we have provided that we've also learned a great deal over the past year as participating in that and we are still available to the superintendent and the project team um, for calls and for participation in that steering committee that This is a highly specialized SAP system. The city's payroll system is PeopleSoft, and while we went live with it successfully over 10 years ago, it's a very different structure and complexity to run education payroll in particular. So the reason that we have respectfully um, provided our response and that while we believe that a post-stabilization review of the SFUSD implementation of the new payroll system is warranted. We do not believe that the city controller's office has the jurisdiction nor the capacity and especially the technical specific technical education payroll expertise for SAP. We have gone further though to recommend and um, state that we believe an SAP experience independent verification and validation consultant um, could be um, could be um, procured um, by the school district, perhaps, or the superintendent, um, to do such a such a review. And so, um, with that, I'll take any questions that, that you may have.
10: Thank you. I just want to through the chair and appreciate the controller's effort um, in assisting uh, in assisting the school district in this process. No further comment.
0: Thank you, Supervisor Chan, and thank you to all those who presented, and again to the civil grand jury and I'm assuming we have no other people who would like to comment for a public comment. Public comment is now closed. Supervisor Chan, would you like to make a motion?
10: Thank you, Chair. I would like to make the motion to uh, file this item as heard.
0: Okay, thank you. And on that motion offered by
1: Member Chan. Member Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Member Engardio? Engardio, aye. aye. Vice Chair Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. You have three ayes.
0: Thank you, Madam Clerk. Will you please call items five and six together? Yes,
1: item number five is a hearing on the 2022 through 2023 Civil Grand Jury Report entitled Taking Care of Business San Francisco's Plan to Save Small Businesses. Item number six is a resolution responding to the presiding judge of the Superior Court on the findings and recommendations contained in the 2022-2023 through Civil Grand Jury Report entitled Taking Care of Business, San Francisco's Plan to Save Small Businesses, and urging the mayor to cause the implementation of accepted findings and recommendations through her department heads and through the development of the annual budget. Thank you.
0: Thank you and colleagues I will be presenting on these items today and I want to start by welcoming Rob Chancellor, Karen Kennard, and Ellen Wong with the Civil Grand Jury and thank them for their incredible work on this report It's excellent. Um, Small businesses are the backbone of San Francisco's economy providing jobs and generating economic activity in our neighborhoods across the city. They also contribute significantly to our local tax base which in turn supports essential public services that we as a county must provide. San Francisco's small businesses are a reflection of our diverse communities and contribute to the cultural vibrancy that this city is so well known for. These businesses also often serve as community anchors, providing gathering places and fostering a sense of belonging for their patrons. They contribute to the neighborhood's identity and help create a strong social fabric. We know, however, that San Francisco's regulatory environment can be burdensome and complex for small businesses. Navigating multiple permitting processes, licenses, and compliance requirements can be time-consuming and costly, often hindering growth and sustainability. Beyond that, San Francisco continues to face extreme challenges from public safety, homelessness, and our city's continued recovery from the pandemic, issues that small businesses are faced with every day and know all too well. It's crucial for us to champion policy initiatives that simplify the regulatory environment for our small businesses. This includes reducing bureaucratic red tape, streamlining permit processes, and providing accessible resources for entrepreneurs. So I'm eager to hear what the Civil Grand Jury Report has to say on this matter. Thank you for being here to present.
15: Thank you for the introduction. Good morning, supervisors and guests. I'm Rob Chancellor, a member of the previous Grand Jury, and it's my privilege to introduce the report, Taking Care of Business, San Francisco's Plan to Save its Small Businesses. When the jury first formed back in July, the impact of the pandemic was very evident that small businesses were suffering but also beyond the circumstances of the immediate time, there were multiple reports in the press of how difficult it is to start a small business in San Francisco. In particular, good to go, is that better?
0: I think if you move a little bit closer to the mic, if you can. A little bit closer. Thank you.
15: Uh, for poking me. Uh, Thank you. Um, But at the same time, the jury did not feel that it was all gloom and doom. We hadn't entered the doom loop that people talk about, at least partially because there were two new initiatives that supported small businesses. Uh, First of all, Proposition H, which was approved by voters. Uh, for, had two provisions, one that uh, there would be 30-day processing for permits for new businesses if they suitably qualified, and second of all did reforms to neighborhood notification rules so that was more difficult for obstruction at, <clears throat> uh, neighbors to obstruct business formation. The second initiative being the first year free program, which uh, for certain qualifying businesses and extensions of those businesses, waived certain fees for and permits for during the first year of those programs. Uh, in addition, uh, the, the jury was, and introduced in its report, a gentleman named Jason, who struggled trying to create a new small ice cream shop. Uh, He struggled with the cost of doing that. He struggled with neighborhood objections to doing that. He struggled with trying to get permits for doing that. And and that sort of was behind the motivation of the jury's investigation. The jury reviewed published reports and online data and services. The jury conducted 17 formal interviews, including city employees and private citizens. Uh, The jury made 60 requests for documents and other information, and conducted five formal exit interviews to review findings with uh, respondents. Uh, Sincere thanks to the city employees and members of the public, for supporting the work of the civil grand jury. In a nutshell, uh, the jury looked at the success of the first year free program uh, and reported that the program has broad support. The jury made recommendations to extend the program beyond 2023 and to improve implementation. Of the two provisions of Proposition H that were reviewed, The jury found the city does not track Proposition H eligibility or compliance in the majority of cases. The jury made recommendations to extend Proposition H protections and to establish procedures to collect the necessary data to validate compliance. Responses from the departments to this grand jury's report and recommendations were timely. Uh, The responses were mostly sympathetic with the recommendations of the jury. Uh, There is apparent coordination among departments, and that was evidenced by shared language and a copy-paste mistake. Some of the responses can be understood as, look what good things we're doing, and the jury found no objection to that. But the jury recommendations can be understood as, look at these opportunity opportunities to do more so I'd like to review some of the recommendations from the report that were directed specifically at the board of supervisors Uh, the first such recommendation being to make the first year free program permanent the mayor's office has supported this recommendation and the first interim report from the treasurer and tax collector supported this recommendation Uh, the board has already an action to extend this program through 2024. The jury suggests the supervisor should identify the requirements for the indefinite extension of this program. Proposition H is perhaps a little unusual in that it contains language that protects proposition some aspects of Proposition H from changes or elimination for a period of time that extends until the end of this year. Uh, The jury recommends extending the provisions of of 30-day permit processing and neighborhood notification rules uh, for another three years. Uh, Responses from departments, did not adequately address the jury's findings regarding the lack of data to track Proposition H eligibility and compliance. The jury also made recommendations with regard to integration of technical systems, having decided that there was, having found evidence that lack of coordination between departments uh, did not, uh, was an obstacle to uh, meeting the requirements of Proposition H and the first year free program. The jury was careful not to suggest any particular implementation or to ask for a one-size solution. Uh, difficulties of sharing data across department have been recognized for many years. Some departments have software systems that are years out of date, and these problems are particularly acute between the Department of Building Inspection and the Planning Department. The jury suggests supervisors should ask departments for an implementation proposal and set a timetable for completion. The jury wanted to, did some investigation to try to determine how well known were the programs that support small businesses. And while the jury commends the Office of Small Businesses efforts in this regard, uh, the jury found that these efforts did not reach far enough. And so one of the recommendations of the jury is that supervisors should host a small business outreach meeting regularly within their district. Uh, this would uh, allow supervisors to assess effectiveness of city's ongoing efforts in the areas covered by the jury report, an opportunity to customize the office of small businesses initiative to each district's needs. And so the jury suggests supervisors go out and meet the folks who might start a new small business. As a follow-up to the question of how well-known the city's programs supporting small business are known, uh, the jury made a recommendation about having a marketing campaign. Uh, Since the jury report was published, uh, there has been a private marketing campaign introduced. Uh, Its logo keeps popping up kind of everywhere. The jury knows but this campaign is not directed specifically at small businesses. And so the jury recommends that San Francisco should supplement the private campaign with an initiative establishing San Francisco as a welcoming environment and promoting city programs for the formation and expansion of small businesses. Related to the question of technology integration, the jury found that there were regular instances of billing errors with regard to especially the first-year free program. The jury was very specific about existing inadequacies, but responses from the departments just reiterate the status quo and offer no progress beyond the jury's report. The supervisor should request updated report on how processes have improved since the jury's report was published. Um, Finally, we return to Jason's ice cream shop. The jury reported that Jason's new business would have qualified for the first year free program saving some substantial funds for starting a new business. The jury reported that Jason's principally permitted use would not have been subject to to, to neighbor's challenges. And Jason's plan should have qualified for streamlined 30 day processing. San Francisco missed out on a new ice cream shop in 2020. The small business environment has improved. The jury recommendations take those improvements a few steps further. Thank you for your attention and thank you for your interest in this report.
0: Thank you, Rob. Uh, It is my understanding that the Mayor's Office and the Office of the Treasurer and the Tax Collector have provided their responses in writing. And as a board, we must provide our responses through a resolution, which we have drafted here today. I will go through our responses shortly. However, I do have some questions about a few of the recommendations to the board, and I'm sure my colleagues might as well. But um, recommendation one, as you mentioned, um, recommends that the mayor and the board um, should take the legislative and budgetary steps necessary to make first year free a permanent program. And that recommendation suggests um, yeah, that we, that we do make it permanent. And I wanted to just do we have our deputy city attorney here? No, we don't. She's just step out. Um, I was just going to confirm with her, which I already know the answer, whether or not um, this program is um, not permanent. And I know that it isn't, obviously. Um, And it will expire on June 30th, 2024, unless extended uh, during next year's budget cycle. And I do have a question for Tom Paulino, um, the mayor's board liaison, um, who is here on behalf of the office of the mayor. Can you please explain uh, the mayor's response to this recommendation? Yes, thank you, Vice <coughs> Vice Chair Stephanie, Tom Paulino, the Mayor's uh, Board liaison. Um, so, as uh, as this board well knows, the mayor is a strong supporter of this program um, and its uh, and its progress. Uh, as well as the board is aware that the mayor issued mid-year budget reductions uh, a few weeks ago. Um, so, the first year free program um, will be assessed in totality of the budget um, uh, as the board and the mayor uh,
13: continue those conversations into next June.
0: Thank you, Tom. Um, as a pilot program, it's clear to me that the first year free has really helped uh, numerous businesses open their doors. And per the mayor's office, um, I know that the program has helped at least 3,000 businesses open their doors. I do believe, uh, however, that we must understand the cost of making this program permanent to ensure that it is the best use of city funds given mid year budget cuts and uh, looming budget deficits but I have asked uh, the budget and legislative analyst team to conduct further analysis on the financial impact of making this program permanent by the end of this fiscal year with their analysis we will have the information necessary to determine how to best move forward with um, permanently establishing this very important program so uh, I don't know if Supervisor Chan I see your name on the roster if you want to speak to this recommendation
10: uh, specifically really just wanted to actually thank I, I I thank you so much for being very thoughtful about this one and I I want to say that uh, with both uh, seeing Tom Polino here uh, on behalf of the mayor's office but during uh, just putting my hat on as a budget committee chair I um, wanted to also acknowledge that uh, with uh, the but- mayor's budget director Anna a dooning there was a conversation during budget and uh, appropriation committee specifically about the fact that I think we are actually Actually all aligned that we want to be supportive and making first-year um free permanent program it is regrettable that you know through the budget process that we're trying to figure out how to fund this in the long term but um, I just wanted to say that the conversation was ongoing we didn't stop there and that we are committed to continue that conversation so again just want to thank the civil grand jury for making these recommendation it really helped make the case um, to for for us as we continue to consider sort of this trade-off conversations about budget that we should take this in consideration and considering making first year free uh, a permanent program and fund it for the long term thank you
0: thank you supervisor chan and obviously this is a budget conversation and that's why i think the bla should um, do an analysis on how much this would cost the board will have to take Um, separate legislative action if we want to make this permanent by striking language from the code so that is something that the board will have to do separate and apart from just the budget process. I do um, also want to look at recommendation 5 I believe that uh, recommendation 5 makes a strong case um, for legislation prop H's provisions regarding 30-day permit processing and the exemption of neighborhood notification for eligible businesses must continue, in my opinion, to be protected as we tackle the vacant storefronts in our commercial corridors. While this is yet to be implemented, I believe that we can and should extend these protections by the end of the fiscal year. Regarding uh, recommendation number seven, um, it calls for various city departments to transition to a new technological system that enables um, better cross-departmental communication. And having been a um, Department head before is the county clerk. I know all too well when we had to redo our systems that this is a complicated process. And the issue of old technology from various departments has been discussed for decades. However, it's been clear that different departments have varied uh, unique requirements for their processing. And this diversity means that a uniform computer system comes with risk, a risk of high implementation cost, intolerable gaps in the system, a prolonged transition, and more headaches. Um, to be to better understand these potential risks and costs of a new system, I have asked the budget and legislative analyst team to also study the costs associated with transitioning to the new system um, in this regard. With this information, I believe uh, we will better understand the feasibility of transitioning to the new system and if feasible, the best pathway to get um, to getting to better integration across our city departments, specifically agencies um, that process all of our small business applications. And with regard to recommendation 8.5, this is another example of a good idea, I think, in premise. But in practicality, I think, um, I mean, most supervisors should be doing this already. I know that I am. And I know that the previous supervisors I've worked for as a legislative aide have also done this. And I know several of my colleagues do this as well, which is meet regularly with groups who represent merchants in their respective districts uh, quite frequently. Um, these include merchant associations, nonprofit organizations, neighborhood groups, and more. And I think um, for me, I, the District 2 supervisor, I know that each district is unique and has a different blend of these stakeholders that represent uh, the merchants in their groups. And I want to emphasize that I do see this recommendation as important. Um, we, like I said, we as supervisors should be meeting with these groups that represent merchants in our district frequently. Um, if not more than quarterly, definitely um, we meet and talk with them all the time. Um, A uniform mandate, I don't know that it's necessary. Um, I feel that I do this already. If the supervisors want to weigh in and think that we need to mandate our colleagues to do it, I'm open to doing that. I don't feel like I need to mandate that on my colleagues. but um, So I don't think uh, implementing this recommendation at this time is what we need to be doing, but I see Supervisor Chan's name on the roster.
10: Chair, I concur with you, I I, I agree that that uh, I, 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 too, assume all supervisors are doing that and uh, our colleagues are actually, uh, at the end of the day, that are, especially for someone like me, I, I definitely have a neighborhood commercial corridors. Uh, in fact, all three of them, Boboa, Gary, and uh, Clement. Uh, so inevitably, I would think that uh, our colleagues, too. I do think, though, some of our colleagues have a more of a unique uh Situation when they actually have uh, business and community benefit districts, and that really create a even a more formal um, conversation that they would have with those uh, districts, and um, that form to support uh, small business and constituents. So, uh, to uniformly to decide what, how, and and uh, who should be at, uh, to to meet with that, it's uh, it's. It's probably not easy to implement. I, 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 so I concur with that thought.
0: Thank you. And regarding uh, recommendation number nine, as the last recommendation, I do uh, want to ask Director, do we have Director Tang here with us today? Oh, good. Great. Good to see you, Director Tang. Um, but I'd like uh, Director Tang to speak to the efforts that the city has made to encourage small business applicants to check their eligibility. Eligibility for these benefit provisions, and to emphasize the city's vibrant uh, small business community.
16: Oh, all right. So well, good to see you. Yes. Good morning, Supervisor. So, uh, with regards to recommendation nine, sorry, I just want I'm just going to flip to that recommendation. Um, and this is with regards to the marketing campaign. Is that right? Just to confirm.
0: Yes. Let me okay. let me just read it so we have a good record on that. Um, By January 31st, 2024, the mayor and the board of supervisors in consultation with OSB should approve funding sufficient to develop and launch a sophisticated marketing campaign to promote San Francisco as a welcoming and supportive environment for new small businesses to open and to encourage support for existing small businesses with reference as appropriate to programs such as first year free and proposition H. Right. So um, on behalf of the Office of
16: Small Business, our response to this recommendation was that it requires further analysis. Um, with especially limited resources and funding, we really felt that it was important for a city to prioritize funding to actually directly support small businesses. So whether it's grant programs or other assistance. Um, so we have really tried to leverage other uh, ways that again don't maybe cost additional city funding um, to um, help small businesses. So, for example, um, as has been talked about, the first year free program was an incredible investment that directly benefits businesses uh, just getting started. They're not generating any revenue yet, and then they are able to get their permit fees waived up front, which is incredibly helpful. Um, another example is that we have partnered with um, TV. we have partnered with Digital Services um, to launch campaigns uh, to support um, and really promote and attract um, San Francisco as a place where you should start a business and also to support the existing businesses. Um, and we have done these promotional Uh, videos again using city resources that don't require additional funding Um, as was mentioned by the civil grand jury there have been partnerships with um, outside you know agencies and organizations and um, we certainly think that that's money well spent outside of city government to promote San Francisco Um, so overall um, I mean, and I know the wording was used uh, to launch a quote-unquote sophisticated marketing campaign, Um, and I think that, um, you know, there are some questions about what sophisticated means, Um, but overall, our goal has been to uh, do whatever we can to create a welcoming environment. So, again, whether it's first-year free, Proposition H, um, streamlining the permitting process, making zoning easier for people, um, all of those things we think will help uh, attract more people to want to start a business here in the city.
0: Thank you, Director Tang. That's that's very helpful. And I, I do think it's critical that we reverse the perception that San Francisco is unfriendly to small businesses, and I think we all share a part in that. Um, the survey, survey data presented in the report really cannot be clearer in terms of owners of small businesses viewing the city as inhospitable not just to opening but sustaining and that's something I think comes from perception comes from many different anecdotes we heard the ice cream stories you know that's one that I think people won't forget for a while but there are also a lot of good stories because of these programs and again I would encourage my colleagues and everyone to share those stories as well we do on our social media platforms Um, we have several businesses that have opened recently that have um, benefited from these programs and are doing quite well and um do have good stories to share Uh, i do um we must do what we can legislatively to reverse this perception as well Um, this requires us as a board to protect proven successes As recommendation number five of the report suggests um, and to continue to widen the eligibility of businesses who can actually utilize these benefits and actually prosper as well. I'm, uh, I just want to say that I'm glad that the mayor and our city agencies have recognized the need to communicate these efforts uh, made to welcome more small businesses and I encourage these offices again to continue these investments. Um, as you stated, uh, Director Tang, in terms of where we put our dollars in terms of really helping businesses um, and funding these programs, I think that's important. So as for this recommendation, I don't believe we need to develop and launch a campaign right now as we will continue to invest in the ongoing outreach as we have been. So um, with that, I um, unless my colleagues have any questions or any comments on the recommendations and findings, I think we could uh, open this up for public comment
1: thank you madam vice chair members of the public who wish to speak to this item please line up along the curtain wall to your right each speaker will be granted two minutes the first speaker may approach the podium
0: madam vice chair there are no speakers to this item thank you i think all our small businesses are they're probably all working so um <laughs> uh supervisor on Guardio, did you oh you just move your microphone um great okay so let me put my glasses back on
13: pardon me chair Yes. If I may, uh, Nick Menard from the Budget Legislative Analyst's Office. Um, I think because there have there are there's a resolution before you uh, on this item that memorializes the board's responses to the findings and recommendations. Typically, um, it's the practice of this committee to read them word for word.
0: I'm the, I'm go- I'm getting oh,
13: there. You're, okay. You're, Pardon me.
0: Yeah, I was just about ready to close public comment and then. Um, I will read that first and then I will close public comment, but thank you. So with regard to the motion we'll be making today, I will be making, um, I will be making a motion following um, public comment, which we did not have, but I'll wait to close public comment until after I read um, what we intend to do, which I um, alluded to during my questions and remarks. Um, during the presentation. Uh, Regarding finding one, which reads, first year free has been generally well-received by small businesses and city agencies, but due to its limited scope when first adopted and its status as a temporary pilot program, its financial benefits to small businesses have been more modest than initially expected. I am proposing that we direct the clerk to respond with the following. Resolved, that the Board of Supervisors reports to the presiding judge of the Superior Court that they agree with finding number one regarding finding nine, which reads, despite recent reforms, there remains a prevalent perception that San Francisco is inhospitable to small businesses and city agencies have not deployed the resources required to effectively counter that perception. I am proposing that we direct the clerk to respond with the following, resolved, that the Board of Supervisors reports to the presiding judge of the Superior Court that they partially disagree with finding number F9 for the following reason, It is critical to reverse existing perceptions that the city is inhospitable to small businesses, including conducting more outreach about the programs small businesses can utilize for their benefit. However, the city agencies have deployed resources to counter this perception, and we do not have certainty that it is not the level of resources required uh, to counter the perception. Regarding recommendation number one, which reads by November 30th, 2023, The Mayor and Board of Supervisors should take the legislative and budgetary steps necessary to make First Year Free a permanent program. I am proposing that we direct the Clerk to respond with the following. Resolved, that the Board of Supervisors reports that recommendation number one requires further analysis and requests the Budget and Legislative Analyst's Office to study the financial impacts of making First Year Free a permanent program and provide a report by June 30th, 2024. Regarding recommendation number five, which reads, by November 30th, 2023, the Board of Supervisors should resolve to allow an additional period of three years from December 2023 through December 2026 before initiating or considering proposals to delete or amend the provisions of Proposition H as defined in this report, requiring 30-day permit processing and elimination of neighborhood notification for eligible commercial projects. I am proposing that we direct the clerk to respond with the following, that the Board of Supervisors reports that recommendation number five has not been implemented but will be implemented by June 30th, 2024. Regarding recommendation seven, which reads, by March 1st, 2024, the mayor and Board of Supervisors should take the legislative and budgetary steps necessary for the city to implement a cross-departmental technology integration strategy For the deployment of a federated computer system that will increase data visibility across all departments involved in business registration, planning, and permitting for improved collaboration and to enable compilation of disparate system data into transparent and usable output for small business customers. I am proposing that we direct the clerk to respond with the following. That the Board of Supervisors reports that recommendation number R7 requires further analysis and requests that the Budget and Legislative analyst Office to study the financial and process impacts of making departments, including the Department of Building Inspection, move to a new computer system and provide a report by September 30, 2024. Regarding recommendation 8.5, which reads, by December 31st, 2023, Each member of the Board of Supervisors should conduct meetings on at least a quarterly basis with small businesses and merchants' associations within his or her district to address issues impacting small business formation and operation and potential solutions and to disseminate information with appropriate contact information for city personnel regarding small business assistant programs such as First Year Free, Proposition H, and any materials developed in response to R8.2 and R8.3 above, Each supervisor should include a summary report of each such meeting in any publication or newsletter issued by his or her office and provide a copy to the Office of Small Business. I am proposing that we direct the clerk to respond with the following, that the Board of Supervisors reports that recommendation number R8.5 will not be implemented because it is not reasonable since each supervisorial district is unique and contains different institutions, nonprofits, merchant associations, and community stakeholders and that most offices already hold these meetings regularly regarding recommendation number nine which reads by january 31st 2024 the mayor and board of supervisors in consultation with the office of small business should approve funding sufficient to develop and launch a sophisticated marketing campaign to promote san francisco as a welcoming and supportive environment for new small businesses to open And to encourage support for existing small businesses with reference as appropriate to programs such as first year free and proposition h i'm proposing that we direct the clerk to respond with the following that the board of supervisors reports that recommendation number r9 has has been implemented with existing resources dedicated to marketing and promoting the city's supportive environment for small businesses through the shop dine sf campaign and raising awareness through information videos and handouts of Proposition H's, as well as first year freeze provisions to small business applicants at the permit center and online. Colleagues, um, please let me know if you have any questions or other feedback on what I just read into the record. Nothing? And then any, anyone wish to p- comment um, for public comment? Seeing none, public comment is now closed. Madam Clerk, on my motion to to direct the clerk to prepare the response as I described and for the response to the full board with recommendation as a committee report, please call the roll.
1: Member Chan?
0: Chan, aye. Member Engardio?
1: Engardio, aye. Vice Chair Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. Thank you, you have three ayes. And on the hearing? Madam Vice Chair. And please. on the hearing, I move to file. File. Thank you. And on that motion to file the hearing, Member Chan. Aye. Chan, I. Aye, member Engardio. Engardio, I. Vice Chair Stephanie. I. Stephanie, I. You have three ayes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Will you please call item seven? Yes. Item number seven is a hearing to review the economic impact, potential tax revenue loss, and city budget consequence of downtown business closures and requesting the controller to report. Thank you.
0: Okay, this item uh, will be led by its sponsor, Supervisor Engardio, who will introduce um, the presenters. Supervisor Engardio, the floor is yours.
17: Thank you, Chair Stephanie. Colleagues, we need to understand the economic impacts and budget consequences from downtown business closures. As a West Side Supervisor, I represent the Great Sunset District. It ends at the ocean, and we are the furthest point from downtown. There's a reason for the old joke that in the city and county of San Francisco, the sunset is the county. We're known as San Francisco's original suburb, and while many of the city's commercial corridors are struggling, many of our neighborhoods are thriving. The New York Times recently featured all the great things happening in the sunset, like the activities on the Great Highway when it's open to pedestrians on weekends, and the 10,000 people who showed up to our new sunset night market. The article said, quote, the outer sunset has flourished while downtown struggles. I also want to acknowledge my West Side colleague, who represents the Outer Richmond neighborhood, also near the ocean and far from downtown. It was listed on Time Out's 40 coolest neighborhoods in the world for 2023. And I agree, the West Side is cool. Yet, our downtown has not been as fortunate as we emerge from the pandemic. Hundreds of brick-and-mortar businesses have shuttered their doors. Office towers have cleared out. Many asked, what's the point of downtown anymore? While I believe the future of San Francisco runs through our neighborhoods like the sunset, we must acknowledge that downtown still matters very much. Downtown generates nearly three quarters of San Francisco's GDP. The majority of our business and commercial tax revenues come from downtown. These funds pay for affordable housing, our parks and recreation, streets and infrastructure, and basic city services in our neighborhoods. And our neighborhoods are more connected to downtown than we think. Nearly 30% of San Francisco's workers across the city are employed downtown. When downtown struggles, our community struggle. I know evolving consumer purchasing habits and structural changes in retail forecast the imminent change to our downtown retail districts. With the shift to remote work, our downtown was overdue for a seismic rebalance. We have an immense opportunity in front of us. Downtown could transition into a 24-hour mixed use and active neighborhood supported by transit and surrounded by culture and entertainment opportunities. San Francisco needs to foster this transition with every tool we have available. We need to continue to bring foot traffic and life to our streets with short-term activations of empty storefronts and events in the street. We need to continue reforms to facilitate the adaptation and reuse of underutilized commercial space. We also need to take a hard look at our business and commercial tax structure. If an entrepreneur or an artisan has a good idea, City Hall needs to roll out the red carpet and cut the red tape so that idea can flourish. When downtown thrives, the rest of San Francisco thrives. Before we hear from the Controller's Office and the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, I want to acknowledge the work to date from Mayor Breed, President Peskin, and Supervisor Mandelman who are working with the treasurer, controller, and chief economist to conduct outreach with the business community and other stakeholders to develop specific tax reform recommendations. Much, much of this work builds upon efforts by my colleagues, including Chair Stephanie's leadership, to understand the impact of remote work on commercial property and tax revenue in San Francisco. So with that, I want to welcome Ted Egan, who is our chief economist at the controller's office. He's here to present his analysis of downtown business closures and the impact this is having on our city's economy. Welcome, Mr. Egan.
6: Thank you very much, uh, Supervisor Engardio. Uh, Ted Egan from the Controller's Office. Um, what I have to share with uh, the committee um, this afternoon is some statistics that our office has, has produced on the changes in downtown business um, since the pandemic. And what we are drawing this data from is our database of sales tax remission. Uh, we know we have information on every business that remits sales tax within San Francisco, including their location and whether or not they were actually open and remitting sales tax in a given quarter. So before I get started with the trends, I just want to—I'm going to share some information on zip codes, and I just want to let people know how we're defining zip, uh, downtown for the purpose of this analysis. It's the zip codes 94102, 94103, 94104, 94105, 94108, and 94111. Um, The first point I will make, or the first uh, fact that stands out from the data, is that when we look at the total number of businesses that are remitting sales tax, I'll try to make this as... Um, the yellow line here is the number of businesses that um, are remitting sales tax going back to before the pandemic in 2019 in the non-downtown part of the city, and the blue line is downtown. So before the pandemic, there were roughly 8,500 businesses um, in a given quarter remitting sales tax. There was obviously a major reset, thank you very much, um, in the years of the pandemic. Fantastic. Um, in 2020, and some recovery, uh, but not a complete recovery. Uh, so, for example, downtown, there were 4,000 businesses before the pandemic. There are around 3,200 now, and it's been fairly steady. So, that's roughly a, a 20% drop in the number of businesses that are active in a given quarter in downtown. There hasn't been a recovery in the rest of the city considered as a whole either, but the recovery has been stronger about 90% of the number of businesses that we saw before. So essentially, these businesses, and this is not a reflection of the whole economy, but it's generally small businesses in the retail, uh, business-to-business, restaurant sectors, the type of companies that pay sales tax, heavily concentrated in downtown, but the downtown recovery has has been weak. Even within downtown, the recovery has been uneven. In the 94102, 94103, uh, which are sort of the southern and western part of those areas that I showed you earlier, uh, and also in 94108, the recovery has been better at about 85%. In 94104, it's only 68%. 94111, uh, 73%. So essentially, the more the district is relying, I think, straight on offices, the slower the recovery has been. I think this is very closely tied to remote work. There's been a difference as well in the types of industries in terms of the recovery. Uh, This is a a look at uh, retail-specific establishments. These are general consumer merchandise stores, apparel stores, shoe stores, etc., but not all of the other types of businesses that sell sales tax. The recovery here has been pretty weak. It's been weak for both downtown and the rest of the city. Here everything is benchmarked to the middle of 2018. That's the 100% number. So you can see that the most recent data we have is about a 90% recovery for the rest of, of uh, the city and about a less than 80% recovery for retail downtown. The situation for restaurants is a bit better. Um, Here, the purple line is the number of restaurants remitting sales tax, both in downtown and in the rest of the city. We actually have more restaurants outside of downtown than we did outside of downtown before the pandemic or or in 2018. So that sector has pretty much fully recovered, but downtown restaurants have not recovered. They're doing better than retail. They're around 90% of normal. Uh, And that's something we see when we look at the sales tax recovery to the actual dollars that are spent, Uh, the sales tax spending has done better for restaurants than other parts of sales tax. Um, So in a nutshell, we don't have data specifically from the sales tax information on business closures. Um, And closures are important, but and that's one certainly dynamic of what's going on downtown since the start of the pandemic. But we've also had fairly weak levels of business formation. So businesses close and new businesses aren't starting and that accounts for the relatively low level of recovery, particularly in downtown um, uh, for for these types of businesses. Um, I think the primary drivers for that are the things we've been talking about in relation to downtown for a few years now remote work, the office vacancy is still quite high. It's having depressing effects still on the tourism industry and the lack of office workers, the relatively low numbers of tourists is is suppressing the demand for those types of businesses. So I think that's the view of downtown, at least from the uh, sales tax point of view and I'm happy to take any questions the committee has.
17: Thank you for your presentation. Um, So my opening question is simple, but probably complex in your opinion, Does the doom loop exist?
6: I don't think the doom loop exists right now. I think if it did, we would see lots more things trending down than we currently are. I mean, I think this first chart shows it rather well. It's a a weak recovery. It's not like the number of businesses either downtown or in the rest of the city is falling off a cliff. It just isn't growing very fast. Uh, That's also a problem. It's certainly a problem, but it's not the problem that sort of the doom loop people are pointing to. Now, that's not to say that we couldn't enter a downward spiral at some point in the future. There are a number of ways I think things could go off the rail in the years to come, but I certainly don't think we're in one now.
17: Got it. Uh, So from what I understand, the five biggest tech companies are paying about a quarter of the business taxes collected by the city. Uh, And if they're all located downtown, can you tell us why this matters especially if gross receipts taxes are collected partially based on where the work is performed?
6: Um, Well, it matters for a number of reasons. Uh, One of which is the average payment of those five companies in business tax of the city is quite high. It's about $70 million a year. And uh, we did some competitiveness analysis of the city's relative tax, you know, liabilities compared to other potential locations in the Bay Area for big employers. And and companies are paying anywhere from 20 times more to 100 times more than that, what they would pay at a city in the South Bay, so so uh, it's a citywide concern that our you know business tax revenue 340 million dollars is coming um, from a handful of companies that would save a lot more being somewhere else, so that's one of the uh, challenges that our business tax reform process is aiming to address. Uh, what does it matter for? Uh, residents and neighborhoods uh, that this is coming out of downtown I think first it emphasizes exactly how important downtown is as a home for businesses continuing home for businesses that produce so much in taxes the business taxes that we're studying in our report generate now about 1.4 billion dollars a year for the city uh, when we first passed the gross receipts tax a little over 10 years ago it was 400 million so we've seen more than a tripling of business tax revenue in that in that time that that is largely spent uh, through the city's general fund supervisor you've already mentioned that uh, at least 30 percent of residents across the city work in downtown the, really the closer you are to downtown the more likely you are to work in downtown but in no census tract in the city are people working less than less than 30% working downtown. So it's a major source of job opportunities. And that continues to be true in this era of remote work. Remote work isn't really turning into remote work. It's turning into just less time in the office. And, uh, and so that is a, throws a wrench into the office market it 's going to require the office market to adjust, but i don 't think it, it will mean or it certainly shouldn 't mean that San francisco won 't continue to host companies that that have all of these economic and fiscal benefits to the city
17: and you had mentioned in your remarks uh, just now that uh, if some of these companies have an incentive or a reason to go somewhere else that 's not good for us um, and I recall back in 2020, there were several ballot measures, um, CEO tax, business tax, overhaul, real estate transfer tax, and I remember people cautioning, watch out, you might kill the golden goose if you, you know, uh, you know, regulate tax, uh, these businesses too much, and they leave, Did, have we killed or strangled the golden goose a bit?
6: Well, I, the good news is that we really don't have very many examples of big tech companies moving out of the city, there are one or two uh, that, are, that, Could arguably um uh, be blamed on the city's tax system but it hasn't been an enormous exodus but i think the report that we produced in july highlights that the risks are higher than they've been in the past and
17: in your opinion how can the city make it more affordable to hire employees or do business
6: in san francisco Uh, well it is more affordable than it used to be because san francisco housing prices have come down quite a bit Uh, Before the pandemic, a condo in San Francisco was six times the national average. Now it's less than four times the national average. So that is just, again, it's an adjustment to remote work, and it's tied up in some of the demographic changes that we've seen in the city. But in terms of factors the cities can control, the city has a tremendous influence on the supply side of housing and, and permitting and zoning that allows how much housing could be built. And those are always policy levers the city could adjust to increase the housing supply.
17: And when it comes to investing in, town, in downtown, are there folks that we want to attract? Or who is or who who is investing in downtown and in what ways? Or, or, or who do we need to go out and recruit? Uh,
6: well, it depends what you mean by investing. Uh, companies that sign leases and take office space in the city are certainly making an investment in the city. And we've already talked about the fiscal benefits that they bring and the job opportunities and other indirect benefits of that. Um, because of the challenges that are facing the commercial real estate sector now, I think there's beginning to see a new wave of real estate investors who have new ideas about what to do with commercial property that is now you know, available at, at really historically low prices. And I think we're seeing some very interesting ideas about investing in in older buildings and, and maybe preparing them for what seems to be where the office market is going, which is very attractive offices that, that make people want to come into the office. Uh, that does seem to be, the high quality spaces seems to be where the market is going. And, uh, and that's great to see that. I mean, we could have seen people saying, oh, you know, office market in San Francisco is really weak. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, but we're not seeing that. So I think that's really good news.
17: Great. Um, so here at City Hall, I understand we're, we are working on possible business tax reforms, um, and one of the strategies being considered is to move away from payroll location factor to the sales factor. Can you explain to
6: people how that would work? Well, for our, um, we are exploring sort of structural changes to the tax, uh, a lot of the feedback we have gotten from various stakeholders is we need less, we need to lower taxes or we need more tax revenue. And those are questions we're really deferring at this point to sort of look at the structure of the tasks, tax. And is there a way to, for, for an exercise, collect the same amount of tax revenue, but collect it in a way that is less damaging and less risky for the city's economy? So one of the things we're exploring is shifting the tax away from a tax essentially on payroll. What we do with payroll is we ask companies to tell us how much of their payroll company-wide takes place within San Francisco. And that factor is used to, to sort of say how much of your company-wide total gross receipts are we allowed to tax in San Francisco? So for example, if you have if you're a national company and 80% of your payroll is in San Francisco, um, and let's say you're in financial services, our law would say, okay, your total U.S. sales, 80% of that is taxable in San Francisco. Uh, that reliance on this payroll factor um, is what creates the wide variations between the tax you would owe in San Francisco and the tax you would owe in another city. If instead we base the tax on how much you sell in San Francisco, then there's really no penalty to having jobs in and having a physical location for work in San Francisco. We're not going to recommend going entirely to sales because that would create too many adverse effects on other industries, but we do think the more you can reduce the payroll factor, the more you're going to take away this incentive for businesses to move away. Thanks for explaining
17: that. Um, I'm wondering, uh, are there other major cities that have recovered similarly to San Francisco or better than San Francisco?
6: Uh, You mean since the pandemic? Yes. Um, A couple of cities, uh, I would say I haven't looked at this with the sort of statistical rigor that I like to do with questions like that. So I'm going to be recirculating anecdotes in some way, which I apologize for in advance. But I think there's some evidence that New York has had, while still having quite a weak office market, has had a better recovery as a city economically. I think that's also kind of true of Seattle. I mean, San Francisco overall has had a relatively weak recovery. We are the weakest recovery in terms of sales tax of any county in the state of California. We have one of the slowest job recoveries of any metro area in the In the United States Um, but there are cities where it's a combination I think of a shorter commute and uh, other economic activities downtown that have you know sort of balanced their reliance on the office sector that has have given them a faster recovery Uh, I would say that that many of the cities that have had a very fast recovery because they have essentially no office downtown and a lot of tourism you know those were cities that were lagging San Francisco very much in the in the past and over the past 20 or 30 years. So I do think there's something special about the San Francisco economy uh, that we that we don't want to lose and that will come back. Uh, but the office market at the moment is is dealing with a very major shift and it's going to take some time for it to stabilize again.
17: And I'm wondering what role housing plays in this because I imagine if other major cities have a lot of housing in their downtown, that maybe they're more insulated by these um, effects of the the pandemic. Uh, And one thing that I was shocked to hear is that 70% of those employed by San Francisco companies live outside of San Francisco. Um, Should we be trying to build more housing to keep the people here?
6: I mean, as I mentioned before, it would always benefit the city's economy if if, uh, we could get more housing built in San Francisco. And I do think if we had been able to get more housing built in San Francisco before the pandemic, uh, when conditions were very favorable for construction, that probably would have helped us. Uh, The problem that we're at now is, uh, I mentioned that this, how much the housing prices have come down in the city. Downtown San Francisco is one of the weakest housing markets in the country. And these types of conversions of office space to residential, that that frankly aren't happening very much anywhere in the country uh, are particularly challenging financially in San Francisco. And that's, I think, why you're not seeing it happen. So it may be a case of of trying to fix, you know, the roof when it's raining a little bit with, with wanting to encourage housing downtown because the demand for housing just isn't there. I think it will come back when the office market adjusts and people will you know, be going into the office more often, new tenants will be found for that office space and new office product will come online and that will sort of recreate a, some demand to live downtown. But it's, it's clear that one of the differences between downtown San Francisco and many other downtowns in the United States is that proximity to, a working, to an office downtown was a major driver of, of residential demand downtown. Um, I mentioned the 30% plus of workers who, um, who work downtown. For the downtown housing, it's more like 60 or 70%. So you're taking a housing market where 60 to 70% of the workers were working primarily in an office downtown, and now they don't have to go to that office. And sort of the rationale for spending that much as housing has sort of gone away um and so i think that's the challenge of housing downtown at the moment it's almost too closely linked to the office market to sort of break free of it and what about housing
17: in other parts of the city like the west side if we built more housing on the west side would that help Uh, things
6: i continue to think that there are lots of opportunities to develop housing all across the city and there are a lot of uh, rules the city has that could be relaxed to encourage housing development even in this environment
17: yeah, and about the, um, the down, you mentioned the office conversion. Can you explain a little bit why it's not penciling out, why there's so few uh, applications to convert office buildings to residential?
6: Well, I think there are a number of reasons. I mean, one of the reasons that people are learning about a lot as they dig into it is that it's very building specific. I mean, there are a lot of buildings that, I mean, nobody wants a, a condo or an apartment that doesn't have a view, but a lot of people have offices that don't have a view. So, so that's a problem of what do you do with the space that doesn't have uh, uh, sunlight. Um, there are also challenges about individual uh, heating and air conditioning units and a number of other architectural challenges that make it relatively costly. I do think though that a major factor in San Francisco is that uh, you know, the housing market, the housing prices have come down a lot. Construction costs are very high. Um, And office buildings are not trading low enough uh, to be attractive to a housing developer. And the people who are buying office buildings now, even at this very reduced price, are are largely office investors. Uh, So I think that's the reason. It's just, it's simply not the highest and best use and it's not where the market is going.
17: Well, I appreciate your candid take on these questions. I'd like to turn it over to my colleagues, see if you have any additional questions. Good, all right, great. Well, thank you again, Mr. Egan, for your time today. It's really important to the public hear what's going uh, on with our downtown. Um, you know, we need to understand the interconnectedness of all of this um, and reimagining downtown is not just a concern for the supervisors or the people who live and do business there. It's something we all have to, have to work on and try to solve. So thank you. Uh, so on that note, I'd like to welcome Sarah Dennis Phillips from the Office of Economic and Workforce Development to speak about their response to the downtown economic situation. Good afternoon, Director Dennis Phillips.
18: Good afternoon. Thank you, Supervisor Engardio. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie and Supervisor Chan for uh, letting us add our voice here as well. Um, I am joined by a number of my colleagues who work directly with businesses, uh, Diana Ponce de Leon from our um, Community and Economic Development Division, Laurel Arvantidis, who runs our business development division, and of course, Katie. Well, Katie's left, but Katie was here. You got to hear from her before on our Office of Small Business. She's remote. Um, So we wanted to talk just a little bit about what we are hearing from that work, working directly with businesses. And just like Ted went through the difficulty of identifying business closures directly, right, and that we have to do it through a little bit of anthropological work on sales data, Um, we don't have direct data on why businesses are closing either. Um, can we bring up the next, the slide, next slide? Um, but we do talk to them and, and, and the things that we hear at first on the retail front, right? There has been a changing retail landscape for some time. Retail was already changing prior to COVID. Um, How people get their their goods that are not daily needs and not immediate needs um, certainly has changed with the advent of online retail. Um, And experimental retail was a thing popping up even then. Do do people want to come to shop for their needs or for experience? We saw a real dramatic shift um, with that uh, during COVID. Um, and, and I think that really hastened some of the changes we were going to see to the retail landscape over the next 10 years to a, to a two year change. Um, and then the impact of COVID itself on small business, particularly, um, there was a decline in patrons due to reduced occupancy and lower foot traffic, obviously. Um, and then on the hospitality front, there's been a decline in patrons due to reduced tourism. And that's been a big impact too, particularly given the extent that our tourism industry relied on Asian Pacific tourism. Um, On the office and professional service side, um, that's been talked about a lot. Remote work obviously is a factor. We were uniquely vulnerable to that among American cities, given the prevalence of tech um, and the adaptiveness of of that overall sector to remote work. Um, And then there are the comparative challenges of doing business in the city that Ted already mentioned. Um, Not just cost, um, but the safety and other challenges that just come with working in a big city. Um, and then cost of living obviously is an impact and we hear that again and again from employers all the way from the large business side to of course the small business side. Next slide. so, what are we doing about it? Um, as you know, in February 2023, the mayor released her roadmap to San Francisco's recovery. Um, we did uh, in August. We did a six-month update of that to see where things are going, and we're going to take you through the details. But just as that roadmap relates to the topics we're discussing today, um, it is really focused on a number of things. We're focused on supporting the retail revolution overall, um, particularly supporting small businesses as they depend, as they transition from 100% dependency on foot traffic to increasing revenues through e-commerce, through increasing revenues by having multiple locations, particularly in neighborhoods where they can see some of those businesses as well. Um, We're really focused on business, uh, not only recruitment, but retention, because as we noted in the talk about the uh business taxes if we lose companies that's a really big hit um and we're working with the with companies day to day trying to be a resource from them on the small business side and the big business side um, the business tax project that ted discussed is is a big part of that and i'd like to add on from the office of economic development's perspective not only the structural change, so we're not over-relying on a few industries or burdening um, businesses based on uh, uh, employees that they have in San Francisco. It's also important that once we get through that structural process, we look at our comparative disadvantage. Um, We are not afraid of losing businesses outside of california i think the flight to austin has has stopped but we are fearful for our competitive disadvantage within the bay area where people can still travel across county lines Um, and that's a concern for us we're really focused on activations and events that can increase interest foot traffic and visits to downtown making downtown a second neighborhood for people who live in the city Um, and partnering with neighborhood quarters on that. And um, we're we're coordinating um, strongly with our tourism partners. uh, SF Travel, the Hotel Council, and our local CBDs are good partners in that as well. Um, And then, uh, next slide, we'll just take you briefly through um, what we're finding um, and a six-month review of of the mayor's roadmap. Um, Strategy one is ensure downtown is clean, safe, and inviting um we're making progress particularly on the investment side despite budget challenges um we are our starting pay for police officers among the highest in the bay area we're seeing the results of that with um really high academy classes graduating the highest one graduated in august i believe um our budget oewd's budget includes almost 50 million over the next two years for non-police community-based ambassador programs on the safety side and we hear daily from businesses their support of that program and their reliance on it to uh, increase foot traffic to their businesses Um, and obviously um, we continue to work on the homelessness front to get people into secure and safe housing and off the street strategy two: attract and retain a diverse range of industries and employers We are seeing increased office attendance, attendance, which is great. Um, We actually had uh, July 22 to 23, we had the largest year-on-year gain of any American city. Um, We were probably the farthest behind, but um, it does show that we are moving in the right direction. Um, Office demand is increasing. Even as our vacancy is at a pretty high rate, almost 30%, the interest in those vacancies, the touring that we see across brokers and the leases that are signed, like OpenAI's recent lease just last week, um, is making an impact. And uh, within the real estate sector, um, I think we're looking at this slide is a little bit incorrect. Uh, with OpenAI's lease, we're probably looking at under five hundred thousand uh, demand for AI out there, but it is still growing. And there, um, facilitating use and, and flexibility in, biz, in buildings, um, despite the challenges of converting office buildings, we do think it's important that we use our stock downtown to try to invite new uses, whether those are institutional, arts, or residential conversions. And so we are working hard with uh, folks to try to overcome the financial challenges and the structural and code challenges that Ted mentioned that happen with residential conversions. Um, Strategy four, if we can go to the next slide, um, making it easier to start and grow a business. You heard a lot of this um, in your previous item uh, when we spoke about uh, the first year free program to date lots of businesses benefiting there we are seeing about 800 new business registrations a month um, on average over this quarter so we're seeing very high interest in starting a business Um, many of those are small businesses many of those are relying on the um, changes to the planning code that uh, the board of supervisors is, is hearing in coming months to try to increase and reduce hurdles um, that small businesses have into getting into those ground floor vacant spaces. Um, We also uh, started our vacant to vibrant program. Just last month, we launched 17 activators in nine spaces. Uh, That's an experimental program, but just as another evidence of interest, we are hearing that out of the nine spaces that were dedicated to that program, Seven of them are pursuing long-term leases with the activators that are happening now on what was intended to be a temporary program. So we'll let you know when those leases are signed, but it's, it's looking good so far. Um, strategy five, growing and uh, preparing our workforce. Uh, we continue to enroll job seekers in workforce services. Um, just in the first six months, we enrolled over 2,500 new, uh, new job seekers in those services. We have a graduation of the City Build Academy happening tonight, um, showing that our construction uh, pool is still growing, while albeit slowly, because of the challenges in the construction industry. Um, And we're excited about tourism starting to recover, and and that's something we're watching closely. Um, uh, This morning, there was a ribbon cutting uh, at 7th and and Mission, an interesting location, where we have about 320 new hotel rooms coming online over the next month, which is evidence of an increase there. Um, we're working to transform downtown into an arts, culture, and nightlife destination. Um, the primary strategy there is the activations we've mentioned, like Supervisor and Guardio, your night market. Um, we are seeing downtown the success of it, just like you've seen in your district, over 10,000 people at the Bangor and Beats night events, um, an average of 6,000 people an event to the undiscovered uh, Black Party happening in Soma almost 5,000 attendees to the World Cup village parties that we hosted when we were watching the Women's World Cup. So we're seeing people want to come to those and we see that on a daily basis too. The crossing is one of downtown's most popular activities where people are playing pickleball, um, you know, working out and uh, attending, drinking, doing fun stuff, so that's, that's having great success. On the public space side, obviously a critical strategy is making downtown not just a place where people go to work, but where they want to stay and where they can recreate. Um, The shared spaces program became permanent earlier this year. Uh, Last month, we opened landing at Leidesdorf as a new public space downtown, and that's being activated weekly with yoga classes and live music. Um, and we see that working as well. We have a 67% recovery in foot traffic based on the University of Toronto's latest survey where we went up, Um, and that's pretty good considering uh, our office attendance is still at 42%, so we are seeing people move downtown more than you would see if it was just relying on office. Um, Transportation connections are critical, and I just encourage you all to um, keep an eye on that. One of the Fundamental economic development factors that create a demand for San Francisco is our transportation access. So, we need to make sure that those services are funded and continue to be reliable to maintain our advantage in that sector. And then, telling our story I think, as, as you hear um, regularly, San Francisco has actual challenges, but the international and national narrative beyond the walls of the Bay Area. Um, is is a different one than our residency on day-to-day. So we're trying to put the reality of that out there with our partners in the private sector. Um, so with that, our team is uh, here for questions.
17: Thank you, those are great slides. I, I, I just want to make one note on the, you had mentioned in an in early slide about uh, police academy numbers. Um, we do still have a ways to go. Back in the day, we would have 40, 50, uh, folks uh, in the academy and right now we're we're lucky if we get like 12 right so we're so it's still uh, so I just want to people to know we got to really work hard on and boosting those numbers given that we're short about 600 officers um, and we also there's other jurisdictions um, that are offering like a, uh, incentives to join the force that, that we don't offer. So there's still work we need to do to bolster that. But I, but I appreciate you making that point that at least we're moving in the right right direction, <laughs> in that regard. Um, so I just had a couple of questions. Um, what are some examples of the new paradigm we need to move towards for downtown? Is it Jackson Square, Mission Rock, Yerba Buena? Like what what would be a, a, an example that we're trying to we're trying to uh, attain?
18: Mission Rock is a great example. I think you know even um, oddly the East Cut is a very good example. The East Cut is an example of a neighborhood that I think frankly felt pretty sterile pre-COVID, with um, a lot of housing that didn't feel San Franciscan that that was that was new to the city. Um, but that housing took the place of of where offices would be in the northern financial district. And if you go to the East Cut on a weeknight, um, in in you know particularly in the summer, you're seeing people coming out of offices, coming out of residential uses, uh, recreating at the crossing, going to bars and restaurants, and the mix that exists there in terms of land uses, not just dependent on office use, has really made a difference. Um, and you can see it when you cross Market Street. So. Uh, the big focus that we are looking at is making place making downtown a place you want to be, not a place you have to be. Um, and and so that and, and I think that parallels with our retail strategy as well. Retail isn't something you have to do anymore. You have multiple ways of getting your goods. If you're going to go and purchase from a local business, um, it has to be something you want to do and that is enjoyable. So that's our big focus.
17: And for us as a board of supervisors, when we think about legislation or policies to address this issue, do you think we should be putting our energy into rebuilding what was, or should we really start from scratch?
18: Um, I don't know if it's starting from scratch. I mean, the idea of a mixed-use city is one. You know, since I studied uh, in the wake of Jane Jacobs as an urban planner, it's 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 certainly been a part of how we think about how cities that we love should be for a long time. I think in San Francisco, I mean, what's ironic is San Francisco's zoning code and uses did permit other uses than offices. Um, We just got bit out a little bit by our own economy where there was a, you know, a highest and best use based on what they could pay that kind of crammed out other uses. So it's our belief that as we look forward um, we need to be really intentional about how we're repopulating these buildings. Um, we are, of, of course, encouraging all sorts of activity. But I think the fact that it is not happening fast and furious as our economy rebuilds gives us a little time to work hard on those handful of residential conversions that we can get. Work hard on attracting some major arts uses to downtown. Work hard on those other uses that maybe can't pay as much as, as tech office did in, in the late uh, twenty. 18 and 19.
17: And what? And speaking of that time period, what types of jobs are missing from downtown areas compared to those boom years prior to 2019? And and along those lines, how many people are missing when it comes to foot traffic or just customers?
18: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. In terms of people, I mean, it's my understanding, and there are different numbers, whether you're looking at the California Department of Finance or the U.S. Census. But we have lost uh, residentially anywhere between five and 7% of our population. We're regaining that a, a little bit. And so our population hit is not as dramatic as people have noted, but but it's happened. I think the bigger hit is the office. As I mentioned, 42% um, return to the office based on pre-COVID numbers, um, which is low across the city and certainly represents a whole lot of daytime Uh, patrons for small businesses that are not happening that we need to think about um so that's a big factor
17: and is there anything that we can do to make it more affordable to hire employees or do business downtown
18: you know the big one we hear and, and i think my colleague can speak in more detail is the uh the hcso ordinance am i getting that right yeah. Um, that's a big burden on our employers, particularly small businesses, as they try to add uh, health care costs to what they are serving for their employees. Um, as we know, the cost of living is high in San Francisco. The cost of getting to San Francisco is high. The cost of doing business is high. Um, many of our small businesses are pairing, paying fair wages, but it, there's a heavy burden on top of that as well.
17: And uh, you were quoted in the famous Nathan Heller New Yorker article Uh, really a deep dive into what's happened to San Francisco really, right? That was the headline of the article. And you said that converting offices to housing was only about 20% of the strategy for reimagining downtown. So I'm wondering what are some other strategies uh, for growing the city's housing stock in the downtown area?
18: Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that Ted noted about the challenges of conversions, um, not just getting the right floor plate that works for a residential unit, but making sure uh, it can be seismically upgraded. A lot of those are are really risky propositions because a developer doesn't know what they're getting into until they get into the guts of the building. So it's a challenging one. Um, We actually do believe, and I've heard this um, across across the country at at others who are looking at conversions, that some of those conversions are, you know best going to happen from net new development whether those are tearing down obsolete buildings um, and we even have some in the civic center that some of our uh, uh some of my fellow employees work in that are not great office buildings that could um, once torn down become great housing sites so i think that's a big opportunity for us as well and i don't want to discount the number of housing units adjacent to downtown that will be patrons of downtown right downtown and the zip codes that uh, that mr egan showed today is a finite area mission rock pier 70 um much of the housing planned at the port even piers 3032 those are places that are directly adjacent to downtown and those are patrons that will help enliven it as well
17: all right well thank you director dennis phillips really appreciate you being here today uh, i'll ask my colleagues if have any questions
0: Thank you, Supervisor Engardio, for this hearing. Uh, and this information is great. I feel that it's really um, confirmed what I believe to be anecdotal evidence of the city rebounding in ways that we weren't um, months ago. So thank you for all your work. I don't know if my colleagues um, have any other questions or comments, but we can open up to public comment. Do you have any more um, Will to present? Nope. Or, okay. I'm good. Great. I don't see anybody else on the roster, so let's open it up for public comment. Thank
1: you, Madam Vice Chair. Are there any members of the public that would like to make public comment to this item? Please approach the podium.
0: There are no members of the public to speak to this item. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment is now closed. Supervisor and Guardio. I'd like to
17: thank the Chief Economist and the Director of OEWD for being here today. I also want to note that the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce submitted a letter about the urgency of addressing these issues and understanding the extent to which the business community has been affected by the reduced foot traffic, decreased transit ridership, vacant storefronts, and an overall reduction in economic activity in San Francisco's downtown. So I look forward to working with my colleagues on the board, the mayor, and the departments on these revitalization efforts.
0: Thank you, do you have a motion, Mr. start yes, at the hearings?
17: I'd like to make a motion to file this item as heard.
1: Thank you, and on the motion, Member Chan. Aye. Chan, I, Member Ingardio. Aye. Engardio, aye. Vice Chair Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. You have three ayes.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Madam Clerk. And before uh, I ask you if we have any other items, I know that we need to go back to item five. I need to move to rescind the um, vote on that. We need to keep that hearing open, I've been told, as we finalize our recommendations and respond to the grand jury report. So I'd like to move to rescind the vote, and then um, my next motion will be to um, continue that to the call of the chair. Thank you. And I can do
1: that in one vote. On that, Member Chan? Aye. Chan, I. Member Engardio? and Guardio, aye. Vice Chair Stephanie? Aye. Stephanie, aye. You have
0: three ayes. Thank you. Any further business? There's no further business. This meeting is adjourned. Thank you.